Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What's good, Internet? It is Friday, April 5th, 2019. You are listening to Waypoint Radio, episode 228. I don't like that they don't put the episode number. You don't put the episode number in the title anymore. I got to dig in on iTunes, on Apple, on the Apple thing. Yeah. I got to dig in. I got to look at the bottom of the thing. Oh, episode 227. I'm I'm going back. Fuck it. Fuck it. If they take... If Apple... Apple. If Apple. If you take us off, because we put our Steve episode Jobs on, Ghost. Yeah, Ghost of Jobs. <laughs> if you kick us off the podcast. My new app, one man play. Ghost of Jobs. <laughs> uh, that was Patrick Klepek. Ghost of it's Cash. All, it's, that it's was all Rob my Zachary. previous uh, employment in uh, games <laughs> journalism. The Ghost of Jobs. God. Uh, I, t- I come to your place, and then the place goes under. It, oh, wait, okay, wait. Could wait hold on a second. Could still happen to you, Giant Bomb. Could still oh, yeah, that's happen. That's true. That's true. Waypoint also. Over the long stretch <laughs> yeah, of time. I was, I was more concerned God. about this. That's true. It would be rough, wouldn't it? Wow, I left some deep fingerprint grooves on my armrest there. <laughs> saying that. Just. Oh, boy. It does feel like Friday. Oh, it is Friday if you're listening at home. Uh, or or Saturday or Sunday or another day of the week, but it's not. It's definitely not Thursday the fourth when we're recording this. Still a little punchy from PAX, I think. I think we're still a little a little off. I think you off. lose you lose that weekend, and it just changes the whole like dynamic. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if punchy's the word. It's like sleepy. I'm out punchy. here punching yeah, people. Like- <laughs> on, I'm in the discourse. You're fucking in the discourse. Boom. Oh my god, god. what a fucking week boom. to come back to after a pack. Yeah, that's the actual thing. Is any other week? We came right into it. Well, it started before we left. Is the thing, and I thought it would chill. I thought that we would get a weekend. We'd see some video games. We'd come mm-hmm. back, and the cycle would continue. The same 13 <laughs> takes that the video game industry is consumed with. And has been for my entire life would yep. would roll on as normal. The wheel it turns, but today someone hit the brakes and we're still in that same part of the wheel. Except it kind of turned in a different part of like the other wheels turned. No, wheels wheels around. It just came back around. No, but it didn't leave. I'm saying I thought it would pass. I thought the uh, mark on the wheel hit last yeah, week. Yeah, I got you. But I, I thought it would you, roll by, you. but it didn't. <laughs> There is from soft. Okay, I was gonna toss all of the Discord cards in the air, the things that have been like consuming the various corners of the gaming world that I'm part of this week, and there are others off to the side and other smaller niches. But the key ones this week are: How do you become a games journalist? Yep. What is the state Great of games? Question. What is don't. the state of don't? Mm-hmm. What is the state of games criticism, and why are all game critics cowards? Uh, <laughs> and. Uh, and that's hey, a deeper question. Uh, and I would I would take that that question more seriously if it came from someone who didn't once call me servile. Uh, the <laughs> and finally uh, the the question of of the question du jour really what's up what's up with Dark Souls and FromSoft games why why uh, why no easy mode slash 
if you put an easy mode in Dark Souls or Sekiro, you're going to turn me into a baby gamer and take away all of my accomplishments. These are the, the most, the <laughs> widest array of responses to the difficulty question, difficulty and accessibility question. Despite the <sighs> fact that I could still play it on a normal uh, yeah, quote unquote we, mode. We're gonna pick. We're gonna pick. It makes but me a baby. Your identity just it's in there. will be shattered, Kado. Your <laughs> oh identity, God. which actually Bing. I joke, but I like that is a huge. Yeah, I didn't get into this in like the the piece that I ended up mm-hmm. writing this week, but like I don't think you can extract the response from the identity that people uh, attach to themselves as being a Souls player, and the notion, and this is part of the gatekeeping and exclusionary nature that I think is like mixed up in all this, but yes. I, even people who are acting in good faith, who are like, no, like I love these games, I love them how they are. That isn't necessarily the kind of elitist gatekeeper who is conscious of what they're doing. Totally, it is. I think it is absolutely true. I, I put this at the end of my piece was that part of what made the Souls games extremely uh, sort of sticky to the people that fell for them was that it was counter to the trend of everything in games at the time. It was very handholdy. Everything we build in the game you need to see, and we want you to keep progressing. And Demon's Souls was like, what if not any of that? Right. Um, and as a result, like well, it became like a very personally identifying thing to both conquer, to enjoy. It was counterculture in a certain way. Yes. And now that Souls has become uh, a phenomenon, has become pop culture, it is not counterculture anymore, um, the notion of like ripping out what has now become core to people's identity and enjoyment is like a really difficult concept to r- wrap around. The, I mean, I think that one of the things that's important to do with a lot uh, in general, I want to say that I feel like there is a, there's a lot of abstract language that gets used in these conversations that is reductive for because we're all very um, excited to talk about these things. We all have positions. Sure. We all have ideas. And so I think both in terms of like rushing to get to rushing to use words like difficulty, which is this huge category of thing or accessibility, which we know like even just on the top of our heads has uh, you know two major meanings inside of the, the world of games. Even easy mode. Is, what does that what, mean? Right, what's that mean? <laughs> exactly. All of the stuff we, we toss around those words. But we also like don't even talk about the context in which which um, the 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 discourse around difficulty in games like Dark Souls uh, actually like emerged, and I think one of the important things to understand is that the the kind of like Dark Souls is hard and that makes it good emerges in this moment in the middle of the last generation of games where there had come to a boiling point the feeling that that like game tutorialization was getting in the way of good true game design like it's a very f- silly thing to point to but you know Dark Souls comes out the same year that that sequelitis Mega Man X video comes out right the are you familiar with this like Ego Raptor classic of YouTube games. This is the one in which uh, uh, mm. the guy Ego Raptor, who would go on to go be on PlayStation's The Tester, uh, great Correct. program, uh, and also obviously be part of Game Grumps. I think still <laughs> part of Game Grumps. Yes. Puts out that video where where he's like uh, talking about how much better the original Mega Man is than Mega Man X because Mega Man X has all these text windows that say here's how this game works. When you hit this button, you shoot. Whereas Mega Man, the original Mega Man, just teaches you that with the natural 
like uh, uh, design of the game. We were reaching a point in the in the kind of Xbox 360 era where lots of games had lots of tutorial windows, lots of what gamers at the time called hand-holding, lots of like conversations about how d- developers should trust gamers and make games for gamers and stop trying to appeal to casual gamers. Like this is that era when all of that emerges. And so something that is remarkable, which I do think is like the design of Demon Souls and Dark Souls, the ways in which they allowed you to to both improve as a player on top of just dumping points into your stats. That stuff is really well done. Uh, but it got caught up in that discursive moment in which gamers were getting very – it's also like the rise of mobile games. There's lots of gatekeeping mm-hmm. around – Facebook gaming meant, is taking over. Farmville 100%. was the exact time that this was all happening. These things are inextricable for, from each other. Like this is an yep. it's an ongoing thing. And so even though when Demon Souls releases, obviously it's a 2009 it releases, that doesn't hit with like uh, uh, the same – or actually I don't know when it hits North America. I, I know it hits it – hits, uh, Japan in 2009, but probably 2010 by the time it around hits. that time, though, right? For sure. Um, the the discourse around that game was this is hard and impenetrable, but it was not, and that's a good thing. But by the time Dark Souls rolls around, because that was are, me, that right, was me, totally. Like I was, I was like, I don't understand this mass. I mean, like you go back and listen. Uh, to my dismissive, like Vinny at Giant Bomb was the only one that was into yeah. these games. It was like, no, no, they're cool, they're interesting. It's like, why would you want to die? Like, I just didn't. Didn't get it. I tried playing right. them. It didn't click, but I was, and that was like a very popular, and and I think you're right that like that, even that response from like mainstream establishment, like critic person feeds into like, oh, right. Like this is part of why this is important in, in me finding something in it. Right. And then by 2012, Dark Souls is being sold as the prepare to die edition, you know, like it, <laughs> the, the marketing leans all the way in. This is the hardest game you've ever played. All of which I actually strongly dispute in the sense that, like, I think playing a fighting game against a real strong competitor is way harder than playing Dark Souls, a game that you can bat your head against and slowly progress because you get skill points and can upgrade and because you can look on the ground to find, like, uh, tips from other players because you can summon in other players. pattern-based AI as opposed to an actual human that is, like, trying to work against your psychology. (laughs) But, but, right, totally. But I think one of the things that this conversation has brought up and – Rob, I'm really curious here as someone who who uh, we talked a little about this in our private uh, Discord, um, who's played lots of strategy games across lots of different uh, uh, like s- styles and types, and also a lot of different difficulties. Like, how do we start to unpack that just that word of difficulty and what uh, uh, an easy mode or like um, options for for controlling uh, what your experience is. Uh, is like how do we how do we start thinking about that in a way that's actually not reductive? I don't think the the thing is difficulty doesn't map cleanly from one genre to the next, mm-hmm. right? And I think when you look at strategy games, there's a couple a lot of in a lot of cases difficulty mode uh, has a lot to do with the fact that a lot of strategy AIs are not particularly great at playing these games, that these are games that require both like short term in the moment reasoning to figure out what your immediate like optimal move is. But then also that move needs to be made in reference to what is a longer term optimal play. Like what is the overall strategy uh, for this entire game? What do I want to be doing in a hundred turns and how does what I do in this turn uh, connect to that? AI tends to struggle with that players, to varying degrees, can be mediocre at it or very, very good at it. 
mm-hmm. and can really figure out how to uh, completely outpace what an AI is capable of throwing up against them. And so in some ways, in, in a lot of strategy games, like Civilization is a very good example of this, uh, what you find is a combination of what you'd, cons- what you'd call like ballasting of the player where you are weighing them down with extra constraints in mm. civilization, you will note that on the easiest difficulties, uh, like if you look at, for instance, the happiness of your people in Civilization Five, which is a very important thing to see whether or not your civilization continues to grow. Uh, on easier difficulty levels, you just get a bonus to happiness. A flat which bonus. Which basically means, yeah, you do not need to worry. Like you get, I think, on the easiest difficulty, I think it's like five or six extra happy. And this is on a scale where like, if you're at like positive 13, that's a pretty wildly happy civilization. That is, things are going very well. And so what that basically is doing is it's giving you a huge cushion before you actually have to worry about happiness, which also means you have a huge cushion before your mistakes with regard right. to planning for happiness begin to catch up with you. As you begin to advance through the difficulty level, those bonuses begin to diminish. Maybe they even start turning into penalties and as the difficulty level increases, the AI is frequently being given the types of bonuses that you were. Uh, the AI might be given an accelerated start. You don't see them at the start of the game, so you don't necessarily know what they're up to. But they might be given an extra unit that helps them pick up speed faster. And I think what all of this is trying to get to is, in strategy, um, I think something, I don't remember who who mentioned this. It was over on a Thrones Ahead cast some time ago. Um, AI is meant to lose gracefully. Mm. And that is what you are trying to build, like tune the game around. But as the player, you kind of get to tune that. It's a bit like AI settings or difficulty settings in a lot of racing games. You want to be the fastest, but not like too fast. You want to have to earn it a little <laughs> right. bit. Which, and the which idea I think is, actually, you go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say. So the idea is, you want people to have the feeling of being good at this game. You want people to have the feeling of yep. being a good driver, the feeling of being a good strategist. Whether or not they're that good a driver or that good a strategist to begin with, the point of a difficulty setting in areas like this is to basically tell, like, show you the game at its best. Here's the experience we're trying to have. Here's what people are getting out of it. And if you're great, then that means you play on a harder difficulty and that same experience is just you know, fits your skill level and you still have that experience, but you're just really freaking good. But if you're kind of crap, you just tone it down a little bit and you're still struggling as hard as the person who's great at the game. It's just scaled differently. Totally. The, the, that framing is so useful to me that I wish we had a word for it. I mean, I guess if Danielle was here, you know, she would talk about player experience goals, right? But like, this is the chief, there are ways in which you can think about games, including the the FromSoft games that we're talking about, you know, as the frame for this discourse, as uh, in terms of like a primary player experience goal. And for me, like a good example is this thing that Patrick has written about that I have talked about on the pod that Kato, you recently have talked like the moment in Sekiro where you hit the boss that makes you pay attention and play the game, right? That experience is something that the three of us encountered at different moments. Joel encountered it at a different moment. Natalie encountered it as a, at a different moment. Um, and in, it, it is the, the equivalent maybe of we want you to feel like a good strategist or a fast race car driver. You want to win, but maybe not so by, by such a large margin that you don't feel like 
uh, a competitor, right? You want there to be stress. You want there to be the feeling of learning. The thing that I feel like is being dis- discarded in a lot of the discourse here, or that maybe not discarded, but uh, I, like Patrick, you and I, when we've tweeted about this, we take this as a given, but other people haven't even thought about it at all, uh, is that, and it's a simple thing, we all arrive to that moment differently. That that experience goal, that feeling of, who I, I sat down, I learned this thing, I got through it, already occurs at a different rate and in different ways, even among people who all consider themselves able-bodied, even among people who all consider themselves skilled in the genre. That stuff still trickles down in different ways. And what makes these games, you know, historically have have been so memorable is that like the moment when you get it is uh, very clear to you as the player. You go, oh yeah, that that was the fight that 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 made me learn this thing. But the the thing that is like so important for me in, in trying to unpack this is that like for people who don't have a good time with these games, I, I put 42 hours into, into Sekiro before beating it. For someone who puts 90 hours into Sekiro before beating it, someone who puts three hours into a boss fight that I only put an hour into, their experience is going to be a different thing than than mine, right? Like that experience of being a good ninja is not the same between my experience and someone who is bashing their head against the wall. That experience is not being delivered. It's not that like, beating the boss doesn't trigger the thing in your brain that goes, aha, I've had the experience now. The experience comes from having that exact blend of smoothness and tension. And for me, like this is part of why I want to start talking about opening these games up in ways to start letting new people in. And Patrick, one of the things that you wrote about was like, and they're going to do that. People are going to figure out a way to do that no matter what. People are going to progress in these games no matter what if they're determined to, because we find ways to cheat and exploit and bring in outside, you know, uh, information uh, that's going to happen no matter what. Yeah. The, yeah. The moment that you've asked a friend for help is like, well, you've, you've undermined the quote unquote designer intent. Um, and, and these games, like it's easy to forget, like Sekiro itself is artificially made more difficult because it has <laughs> removed ways for you to like, like in, in a lot of ways, previous games actually did have difficulty sliders that you could, adjust. Now they weren't yeah. as they weren't as arbitrary as, you know, make parry window bigger or uh don't interrupt the player um when they're healing. Like yeah. for people who haven't played these games, like one of the big things is like the game explicitly will have enemy designs that are like will trigger the moment that you like do a healing thing. So like one of the one of the fights we've talked about in the past, for example, um if you try to back off and heal, the guy immediately brings out a really fast arrow and it's timed to interrupt just as you're healing, and it's clear the game being trying to punish you for for doing that. And so, um, in previous games, you could summon a stranger. You could co-op with a friend. I mean, these games were eminently there were rings you could wear. You could, there were like lots of ways to modify yeah. what your core moment to moment experience felt like. Yes, and and this game strips a lot of that down uh, with a purpose. Um, like it, it it has a point. Like I don't disagree with. The folks that are are you know pushing back saying like well they they had a clear message and I'm like I, I I agree with you like everything about this game like all from games is like very deliberate and specific and like pointing towards like a certain player experience but that ignores the ways they have allowed you to adjust those sliders in the past in which like the very existence of things like summons or hint uh, signs across the world 
uh, are undermine that very point, but be, that's because the game is winking at you and saying like, okay, like, you know, have, do what you, do what you'd like, you know, you can, you can, you can change this as, as you, as you will. Um, and I don't know, it just doesn't, I guess what, you know, a lot of us seem to come back to is, uh, it just doesn't bother me. Like it would not, I do think there is an argument that if the game didn't have this to begin with, with Demon Souls, there would have been a world in which people like myself, even myself, right. Who was like butting up against it. Like I needed, I wanted to climb over that wall. And if I was given more options, maybe I wouldn't have, I don't know if that's actually true, but I do think there is something in like the purity of the first game that presents, this is the ideal of what we're going for. But once it becomes like a popular commodity in which other people can find other things out of it, that becomes less of a convincing argument. And there's still a cut over Rob. Uh, well, and like, there's still <sighs> that ideal will still exist in like the idea of something normal or like the standard mode, like where like the designer is presenting, like, okay, this is, well, this was a, our original intent, right? Like that's that will still exist. Or in, if you've played a previous Souls game, this is the 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 button to push. Yeah, it's like, this cool. is all right. I'm yeah, in. like yeah, that that sort of like quote unquote difficulty. Like, have you played a Souls game before? Have you? Is this the first time playing a Souls game? Like, like. Even that sort of scale of thinking is something that, like, for some reason seems, like, I don't know, I don't under, I don't understand how that feels, like, a step too far, because you still have the, like, you can still have the exact same experience you're having. So I will say, and like, like if, I, if I had to respond from the position of a game designer, right. what I would, and I don't think this holds for Sekiro, for FromSoft, for Activision. If I'm an independent game designer who's, like, the only one on my team who's doing gameplay design. Yeah. Finding a a ways to modify difficulty that produce the same experience that produce. All right, I found the metaphor, which is uh, Sekiro wants you to sweat, right? It's like it's like uh, an obstacle course that wants you to sweat. It has to make both star athletes and me sweat. Mm-hmm. I am going to sweat way earlier on an obstacle course than the you know uh, uh, an all class wide receiver Danielle. than than Danielle right absolutely right <laughs> Danielle running the same track as me and so if you have one person who's dedicated to building that obstacle course it's actually a, a pretty high lift to be like all right how do I keep the heart of the feeling of sweat how do I make sure that you're sweating. Uh, even if you're not a Danielle, but also if you're a Danielle, how do you build it? So when that comes to one person, I, I think that there yeah. is, or like a small team, I understand why this feels like uh, uh, it is a challenge. It yeah. absolutely is a yeah. challenge to build a, a a compelling set of difficulty sliders or difficulty modes or uh, uh, various options to do that in a way that pr- still produces the effect that you want and still communicates something artistic that you're going for. Absolutely. I just think that should be prioritized in the same way that that great feeling of swords coming together should be prioritized. Personally, I feel. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Finish. Let's finish uh, off this. No, thought. I mean, I mean, personally, I feel like the. I don't. If there's a, if there's like, the option to have like the original thing, like I say, open up the sliders. Right. You're like, like just let, fuck, which fuck is, it. Like, which let, is the civilization thing. The game right? already has or, new game like, plus. Yeah. It already right, it right. already slides to a harder difficulty. Yes. And so the notion that they don't know how to scale the game, they already do. They yeah. just if anything, new and game the sliders, pluses are like uh, you see them when some somebody posted uh I forget what is it called? Cheat engine? Yeah, cheat like, engine. Like like 
just like sliding how much posture you have would change the game to make it like a little less punishing when you miss that deflection, you know, like things no, like No, there's that. all sorts of like, great sorts options. Of, like, this is why I think that it's, it, that someone, a group of people as talented as FromSoft yeah. is yep. could actually crush this. Absolutely. Could actually create something. Uh, and I have another point on this, but I want to go to Rob because Rob's had something for a moment. So I hear all this, but at the same time, what I can't quite shake is my recollection of a, a week or so ago when everyone is in the first flush of their joy over Sekiro. Mm -hmm. And I was listening to y'all talk about it. And to be clear, I don't think you were being gatekeeping. But in the way, even people who should know better, and I'm usually accustomed to them knowing better, uh, when, when people who love the Souls games begin talking about it, everyone seems to turn into video games Horatio Alger. Like in terms of talking about the reasons they love this game, the things they get out of it, the experiences they have, all of it begins to sound like a gaming morality play to me. Uh, where, and I, I understand it's hard to capture, it's it's hard to describe the excitement over figuring out how to beat a really difficult boss and like leveling up your skills in that moment, like becoming a, a, a you know, a stronger player at that. But at the same time, so much of the discussion around FromSoft's games about what makes them special tends to center on this idea of you have to meet them. You have to rise to their level. And in so doing, you are given something special that other games do not provide. And I don't... So for me, it, I agree that it's obvious to see that we don't want this to be completely gatekept, that other people, like, more constrained by time or just lack of familiarity with these games should have an opportunity to experience that, but maybe at a slightly more accessible level. But at the same time, it does feel just a little bit disingenuous a week or so later to turn around and look at the difficulty discourse and say, how could people have so missed the point? <laughs> Where did this come from? And it's like, we can run the tape. Well, so part of that reason is is, meta is uh, actually, I think, metacontextual on what we're allowed to talk about when a game comes out. I can't talk about the animal bodies in Sekiro the way I want to yet. That game came out two weeks ago. I cannot talk about the boss fights that communicate something about the difference between human and animal the way I want to yet. I can't talk about the uh, the late game twists that end up having something to say about loyalty and parenthood. Uh, I can't talk about the design of certain areas or the use of mythological creatures. Like, I cannot do that shit yet. We are not allowed to. What can I talk about without being – without either write, writing something that no one will read yet because they're all still eagerly playing the game and don't want to be spoiled or without, you know, writing something with unmarked spoilers uh, well, and – First of all, Austin, writing something that nobody will read has never stopped us once here at Waypoint. <laughs> That's not true. That's fucking not true. Like we changed our, our strategy. Like I, I think this is important. We launched running 50 articles a week, 37 of them no one read. But we thought they were important to contribute to a body of work. Then our editorial budget got slashed by a huge percentage and we pivoted to doing more video and podcasting. And so we had to look at the stuff that we were running and we said, all right, we know what gets read. We know what inside of the stuff that gets read is actually still valuable. Let's cut both the – the given the money that we have left, let's make sure, one, we're still paying people fairly because what we could have done is stretch that money thinner and started paying people less and we refused to do that. And what we chose was let's cut away the stuff that we know no one but us is going to read. 
and also the stuff that maybe would get lots of traffic but does not push our mission forward. And we focused on the stuff that was in the middle there that was stuff that we liked to publish. So like I, I think this is important because I would love – two years ago, I would have written the like big deep dive into the Sekiro mythology or Sekiro and human, human and animal bodies piece by now that no one would have read. It is not worth my time to do that because no one wants to read it yet. In a month or two, maybe I get around to writing that piece after people have played this. But the opening kind of uh, salvo is going to be about my gameplay experience with combat because no one cares. Right. In fact, that's not even true. There are still things about the combat I didn't talk about during the first week or two because it is verboten to to even talk about some mechanical spoilers at this point, right? And I, I throw air quotes around each of these like broad reductive terms like mechanical or gameplay because we know that aesthetic is part of gameplay and blah blah blah, right? We can't treat every fucking episode like a one on one course where we're redefining every term. Every term we're using shorthand. So, uh, but, but I think that's a big part of why those stories rise to the top. Those become part of the conversation is because so many of those other conversations have to get backburnered. Also. At that point, I was the only one who had beaten the game or gotten close to beating it. And so I, I already monologue too much on this podcast. We don't <laughs> need a 30-minute thing of me describing to you what some of my thematic takeaways were about this game. And there are plenty. Like this is a game in which a disease caused by the, the, uh, the use of a magical power by the powerful to enact and, and control literal physical territory – by use of uh, emboldening their military forces, has a you know becomes a plague that spreads through the common people of the land. This becomes like this is the cornerstone of this story that ends up being all about you know provincialism and uh, uh, and the center trying to take over the periphery. Like all of this stuff is there. I can't talk about it more than in the abstract terms I just talked about it because people on this podcast haven't gotten to some of that stuff yet, and that is like. I think that speaks to why that conversation ends up being that because that is – and here's the other half of it. I talk about the stuff that I like. I talk about the stuff that that, that uh, really I respond to and th- – but I don't think that that's the limit of what responses can be. Patrick talks about this in the in the piece, right, which is like – Patrick, you don't play these games for the story on the first time through, but you know people who do. I don't play these games for the 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 photography, but Dia does and – Enabling those different types of play, which all of which are really fulfilling to play in, in the FromSoft games, only seems to make sense to me because I think of all of them as equal and valid. It's just that I, I'm not going to sit here and talk about the 20 minutes I took taking photos of Asahina Outskirts or Ashina Outskirts because I didn't do that, you know? Um, Patrick, can you speak a little bit more there actually about that part of the article? <clears throat> we should know Patrick wrote an article about this, but – uh, I put on my sunglasses, got in the discourse. You sure did. Um, <laughs> and, and yeah, you know, I think one of the things that has changed, I don't think this was true at Demon Souls, but it's become more true over time, is that, yes, the the focal point of the discussion around from software, just like, you know, the Souls, the Bloodborne, the games and that, in that just sort of subgenre, has been about difficulty, because that is, like, that that tension between the player, the climbing the mountain is absolutely core to the identity of what those games are. But what we've discovered over the time is like, you know, uh, Viatvidya is like a very prominent um, creator on YouTube in which he has analysis videos of characters, items, thematic trappings of these games that are like viewed four and a half million times. And so the suggestion there is clear that people are like really invested and interested in what these games have to say beyond 
did I tap L1 enough times in order to like break the posture of this <laughs> uh, character? Now, granted that even part of the genius of the From Software games is often how what you are doing by tapping L1 is playing into the larger themes that reverberate both between gameplay and the things you're exploring, what the characters are doing. But uh, there is such a unique style of storytelling to the From Software games in which if you go and read about Miyazaki's approach, um, it's actually interesting. We didn't touch on this on the podcast, but I, as I was kind of going through interviews to see what he had said about difficulty and challenge and the balance of the games, someone asked about the storytelling approach of the Souls games, and he says, yeah, I don't think I'm very good at straightforward storytelling. He said, I have really good ideas, I think, but I try to bury them and obfuscate them because then the players fill in things that I don't know that I'm very good at speaking to, which is like really interesting as a storyteller. And then that also explains a lot of the community reaction to the Souls games and and the interest in piecing together pieces of information. Mm -hmm. And so I've seen from people, one of the responses is, well, okay, let's say you don't like the challenge of these games. Why not just watch a Let's Play? Why not just watch the Viat video? Well, that misses one of the interesting part. One, being in an environment, exploring a world is fundamentally different than watching someone else do it. Rob and I just had, and Danielle had a conversation about the occupation in which I was forced to watch a fucking let's play of that game in order to participate in the conversation. And let me tell you, watching someone else open up drawers, trying to piece together a story, even though it was a no commentary let's play, which maybe those shouldn't exist on YouTube <laughs> as an aside. Those seem a little weird. Um, they're fine. What, I need them. Yes. They're, they're very useful. Um, I did not find that experience to be very palatable or interesting. I wanted to be the one that explored that space, took in that space at, at my own leisure. And the Souls games have that for a lot of people, in which I think you can talk to, I have countless friends that suffer through the game, the moment to moment combat in order to get to the things that they want um, because the things like the story, the world, the characters are broadly appealing. And at this point, it's, it's, it's not a niche. Like it is a huge audience that is interested in engaging with these games in a fundamentally different way. And to ignore that is to prioritize your enjoyment, the thing you get out of the game over what other people are getting. And this is the tension I touch on in the piece as well, is folks like Derek Yu, he, you know, creator of Spelunky, designer of Spelunky, like obviously a very intelligent, um, smart, articulate designer, um, but one who also concluded that, well, the ideas I can think of for how you would change these games well, geez, players would miss the point of them, which my response to that is like, don't assume what the point of an experience is for a player. I think one thing we've learned over time, one of the things that's great about the sort of democratization of discourse and and discussion over games is the realization that your experience or the designer intended experience is not necessarily the experience that is enjoyed or found by all players. And I think Souls games, the reason they create such the flame wars over this shit. The reason people get so impassioned is because by their very nature, their strengths are in so many different ways, but people identify that as their priority, a my experience mm -hmm. and don't understand how many other people are coming at it from different angles. Yeah. And even, even if we were to assume an intent, a specific intent, people will come to that different in different ways. Like the people who have a hard time playing these games and like, we're given the option to like make it a little bit easier could still have the same exact experience but on their level right through whatever right. like for whatever reason that they can't uh or don't want to engage on it on the way that it's like the ba the base level like 
it it I say like empower the players to make the decision of where that line is, right? Like it's it could still be just as hard even if it's quote unquote easier because you've changed a couple sliders, but you've changed them to the point where it's still hard for you, right? Like we don't know everyone's abilities and dexterity or just like reactions are different. And in a game that is based a lot on the combat is based a lot on reacting quickly, like for someone it can just be just as hard even if it's at like seventy five percent speed, for example. Like right, right. But I and I, I will I mean I will admit, like I like I like part of the appeal, I think, for a lot of people of these games is the baseline, right? And so it's knowing whatever happens, however people talk about this game, there is just this is the game. Now, again, that's undermined by things like summons and stuff like that. So that's not necessarily true. But I think you can distill part of the reaction is the appeal of the baseline. And like, you know, one of the lines I put in my piece was like, like, I won't pretend that I don't take some measure of pride in one-shotting totally. ONS, like a famous boss duo in the original game. Knowing wow, you that one I can fucking board that... Well, okay, uh-huh. so I want to be technical. Mm. Uh-huh. Mm. Here's the story. I ran into the room, immediately went like, oh, I don't know what this is. Like, just died immediately. <laughs> okay. Like, it wasn't a real fight. Uh-huh. Then I went in like, it's like, okay, I'm I'm ready. Like, let's go. And then, so nice it's job. technically a two-shot. I'm surprised no one called. I have enough distance from that video. I was like, someone's going to get me on a technicality here. <laughs> uh, but... Um, One but real even if it's a two shot, this this right. is a boss. But, that, having, like, uh, but you um, said that, and I said, "Wow, you did that!" Like to Rob's right. point before about the disingenuousness that this is somehow not part of the conversation. It is absolutely it part is. of the conversation. Like, I, it is. I, I will. I don't want to like in portraying this. I do not want to suggest that I don't. I don't take like it is cool to be at the top of the mountain and look down and be like, like come up here with me. Like like in our in our in our private <laughs> Discord, like you know, like we're encouraging people as they get up there. But like I can't. I, I feel like I can hold these two ideas at once, right? Like, yes. I take pride in climbing the mountain, watching other people get up there, sometimes enjoying the fact that they're not getting there as fast as me, and at the same time hold the feeling that if someone wants to climb up that mountain a different path, like, the reason it's fun in our in ours is, like, we're all on that same baseline, like, right? So I know the lane that we're in. But if someone wants to get in a different lane, like, I don't feel that's lesser. I just know that we're measuring against each other differently, and they're approaching – it's getting up a mountain a different path. Like, it just – that doesn't take away because I know that I'm playing in Austin on our baseline. I know with Natalie and Joel, we're all there. But if someone else came in and said, actually, well, I'm coming from this way, I don't know. That doesn't take away from my accomplishment. I just know it's in a different lane. One of the things that I think is like we has gone and said on, on this conversation, the one that we we're having on this microphone, but that keeps bubbling up on the periphery or kind of being deployed is one about accessibility. Um, and I've seen people say that there has been a, a uh, conflation between accessibility and like ease of ease of play or like accessibility and um, – I'm trying to think of like a, a, a almost sort of like lowercase a accessibility and concerns about disability separately. Well, there there was yeah there was a uh, like someone I was recently chatting with was like uh, was pointing out the uh, when you say easy mode right that doesn't if you were to make a game like just turn all the sliders down on like the health and the posture that does not necessarily address things like Absolutely. color blindness things like physical disability and so like well so wait that I want to pause that, on this because I think sure. they're wrong. 
Um, I think that they're wrong because well, it I can, think it can. We, I guess it's right. not exclusive. Yes. And so right? that like is, it's more nuanced I, than just. I want to. There's two things there, which is like one. Yes, I think that we need one. We've done our best to ring this bell as loud as we can. Um, that's not true. We could do better. We could always do better at this. But like Patrick, you've reported yep. numerous times on the ways in which Nintendo has failed to allow for controller remapping. We are very happy that Microsoft's adaptability controller, uh, you know, or adaptive adaptive controller. What is it? It's adaptive. Adaptive um, uh, was released and and was released after lots of consultation from disabled people who like went into it and said, hey, here are the ways in which this could make it better, right? Um, we thought it was important to tell stories about people like half-coordinated when we did our, our Disney XD show last year. Uh, so like it is something that we, we care about. But the thing that I do want to talk about is that we often, and we, I mean the culture, talks about disability and disabled bodies as existing in a binary state. Either you are disabled or you are not. And we often center that disability inside of the bodies of the disabled. As if to say, your body is this way, which is what makes you disabled. But inside of the field of disability studies, that is like – it hasn't been the, the working model for decades now, right? Disability is socially constructed. Two bodies in two different societies who have the same – a single body in two different societies may be disabled in one and not disabled in the other. Because those different societies have been built to identify certain attributes as being disabled or have built and, and prioritized different models of communication, transportation, uh, the, the, the construction of different types of buildings and architecture in such a way that what, what would traditionally be the symptom or the mark of a disabled body is not even a, a thought in this way. And because society – because disability is socially constructed in this way – and you can like Google any of the shit I'm talking about. You'll find people who have made it their life's work to talk about this stuff and to talk about it in ways that are not academic, ways that are approachable and ways that are, that are important to understand when talking about disability and accessibility. Um, but the thing I want to zoom in on is there is lots of – there are lots of ways and ways of being, modes of being, attributes, physical attributes that are not considered disabled. Uh, because they are not uh, because they are not visible. They're not you know. You, you think about something here with like someone who has uh, uh, you know chronic lifelong uh, illness that is not necessarily a visible illness, but needs to be treated at certain points in time, or that changes their reaction speeds, or that you know uh, color blindness is a perfect perfect example of this. Like someone who is colorblind is not in society can walk around and no one would look at them and say that is a disabled person, right? Or this is a right. person who has a disability. All of these things are treated in different ways uh, or not treated but but can be accounted for in different ways. Difference can be accounted for and addressed. And in games, one of the ways that has been a Band-Aid is difficulty options. For people who have slower reaction times tied to you know a difference in neurological makeup or di a difference in the, the way their hands work, but who would go through their daily lives and not even call <laughs> themselves disabled can turn to those options to address that lack. Or not – it's not a lack in them. It's a lack in the – in the ways in which games are made that allows them to have that same experience, that, that moment where the sweat hits, right? And so I understand the desire to be like, hey, this is not the same thing as colorblindness. And it isn't the same thing as colorblindness. It isn't the same thing as someone like half-coordinated who, who has – who does not have the use of most of one of his hands. But it is all – but it is the same thing in the sense that because bodies are different, because we all have this wide – the bodies on this call are all different. We all have different reaction times. It happens that because FromSoft has like averaged out what players basically play as and they're, they're working at a sort of baseline that like Patrick said is, is similar between all of us. 
we are going to have fairly similar uh, uh, relationships with it and because we've put in a similar amount of time in past games and all that other stuff. But there is a huge amount of – there's a, a huge well of people for whom those reaction times are different. That experience of processing visual information is different, right? Like I – Friends of the Table is a thing that I think is best – I say this is someone who makes stuff. This is the kind of lead into this is I make stuff. I, I try my best to tell stories to people. Uh, Friends of the Table is a storytelling podcast I do that I think is best understood as a podcast. And there's music. There's you know uh, audio, we're acting. We're doing performances. We change our voices. All that stuff happens and those moments are really important to me. But do I want to pay someone to make transcripts so that people who have audio processing issues or, or people who are deaf can also experience this story in a way that I don't necessarily intend it? Absolutely. Like lower that bar, bar, lowering that barrier of entry to me is worth that compromise. Uh, do I get do I get like weirded out when people say they listen to my podcasts with like at two times speed? <laughs> Yes. That's me. That, but it's Patrick. And Patrick's life is not 1. my 5 life. 1.5x. Totally. 1.5x. And I'm actually. happy that that exists for you. I'm yeah. happy that exists for – or the opposite. People who need to slow down the audio for audio processing purposes. Like all of the works uh, – every other medium has made these compromises. And I understand that it is hard to – because we're so close to games, it can be hard to see that an easy mode is not that dissimilar from subtitles on a film or that dissimilar similar from going to a to a uh, a, a uh, museum and there being a walking tour guide who helps you understand what the work's producing in in its audience or even in in like the production of something like jazz music the fact that you could just play rhythm you can collaborate with your friends and play jazz and just play the rhythm line. It's not that hard to just play this one bar over and over again and still be part of the band while the more experienced players are off doing wild-ass solos. But you can still collaborate and still be part of that experience. All of these other media have addressed this question of how do we get more people into it. And I, and I don't think that that is – I don't think anyone else is like, and that's it. We're done. Just follow the model that novels have done and release spark notes or whatever, right? Well, each, each game is different, totally. right? Like every game is going to – is because the mechanic variation is so and wide. no solution is perfect. There is – it's it, – and it's, 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 liter it's, it's literally as simple as prioritizing as an idea yes. as you were building the game and – what is going to make sense for your game that doesn't make sense for another game, right? Like, you know, a lot of people have pointed to, and I highlighted Celeste and the way that that designer, uh, Matt Thorson, you know, put in a mode um, that was originally called cheat mode. And then they got feedback and, you know, as they were figuring things out, that was like, well, what you're suggesting there is, is, is harmful to folks that actually may need this because they are physically incapable of completing the game as designed. And I think like the, um, sort of like key phrase he had in a quote that he gave me was that at some point he's like, I built the game that I wanted to make. I put the blocks where I wanted to put them. I have a very specific experience intent that I'm trying to get across. Like that is absolutely true. And Celeste is just as hard as a Super Meat Boy or a Spelunky. It is it is one of those games that's saying the same circle as souls. Um, and he said, I had to let it go. Mm -hmm. He's like, he had to let it go. That is like tied to ego. That is tied to all sorts of things in which just let if there are two dashes in this game. If someone wants to add a third one, let it go. And and I that was a I think it's an hopefully an important thing to start prioritizing for designers as they go forward on the the indie space or the AAA space is just th think about it as you're building your game. Yes, it's true that people are like development resources, blah blah blah. Sure, yeah, at the very end, cool. asking them to dump that in, but that that shows a deprioritization of that from the beginning. And and also just as we pointed out at the top, like suggest these people who you deeply respect for being smart and clever 
couldn't find a way to satisfy all parties involved. I just think that is a lack of imagination. It is it is frustrating that like the the math of it, the like the pure ratio is such that and the smaller the developer is, the easier it is actually to pressure them to do this despite them not having the resources that Activision does, right? That like if Rob Zachney decided I'm going to quit Waypoint and become a game dev and makes a game that hasn't considered disability and hasn't considered accessibility and ease of use, it's easier to be like, Rob Zachney, you fucked up. Why are you such a fuck up? What's wrong with you? <laughs> Whereas like I'm pointing it from software. Those motherfuckers aren't going to hear me. Do <laughs> you know what I mean? Like Activision, there are people from Activision who are probably listening to this podcast and going, yeah, we should probably think about this in the future. We should send them some notes. But like, and like, thank you for doing that if you do it. But the, the, but in terms of like the distance between the, and this is a much bigger conversation than, than we can get into now, but small teams and individual creators are, despite often having less resources, put into a position where they need to, uh, where they are held more accountable. And this is not a me washing their hands and saying, and that's why we shouldn't tell them to do better. But it is me just like recognizing that we should make sure to hold accountable those big companies and make those demands there and not only. <laughs> I can tweet at Matt Torson and be like, hey, right. it'd be cool if you did this. And he'll respond. I cannot get in touch with Hitaki Miyazaki right, um, right. Uh, unless I have some sort of coordinated interview at an E3 where he wants to stay on his marketing <laughs> points for right. his new Mecha Souls game that oh, he is so surely He's definitely going to make. Finally, it's coming. The The other half of that is um, – the other half of the thing you were just saying about the imagination and like, hey, trust devs to be able to do this is, is the thing that I see brought up again and again is like, OK, but there are some puzzles in The Witness that you – that. Uh, cannot be done by people who are colorblind. Would you have them get rid of those puzzles? Yeah, yeah. Like, that team is good. They could make better different puzzles. There are ways in which, in fact, you can do, you can use color and shape, you can use shapes to address problems with, with colorblindness modes. There are other ways in which you can communicate information. I, I am, t I, like, I don't have a, I'm not like, pull this game from the shelves until it happens. But is it a thing that I'm going to be critical about of? It. Yeah, and and like is the is the idea that the team that made the witness didn't have a different could not have pushed themselves to have made another six puzzles that use it's probably more like sixteen puzzles I remember that area that area is kind of long so those puzzles aren't very good uh, to come up with a different de puzzle design uh, yeah like but, but what that would mean is ideally to have prioritized that that question at the beginning of development and said hey what are the types of things we have to be very careful of here. And one of those things should be colorblindness because there are lots of colorblind people in the world. And the solution they get, I basically arrived at is you could beat the game without doing those puzzles. But like, let's, there are ways in which who you are prioritizing will be, will be clear in the game itself. And so I just like take that into consideration as you make stuff. And try to let that guide you. And if you decide at the end of the day, like, listen, no, this color puzzle is way too dope. I can't not make this, put this color puzzle into the world. Do that knowing, knowingly. Do that with like knowing what you're doing and with like a very clear. We said the, the conviction to defend it, yeah. right? Like yeah. th this is part of the vision. I'm I'm sorry. Um, There's no way I could have skewed the palette whatsoever <laughs> to be more readable to different. No, I just can't. Impossible. No, it has yeah, to no. be the shade. Of these colors. Did we, are we discoursed right. out? Did we make yeah. it through? Can we take a break yeah. and then we talk need to take about a break. video games? You should not check social media 
Don't and I want to read you a tweet. People need to play more than one hard game in their lives. They should. I play a lot of hard games and I like it. Oh, this is the no, thing, but I mean, Rob. This is, this is the thing. It's the, the other part of this is weird to me is like, oh, this is your hard game. That's the other part of this that like when I hear it, I'm like, oh, that's why, that's why this is your hill to die on. Because like once every few years, like FromSoft is like, here's a really hard game. You're like, damn, this isn't like the other stuff I play. Like, uh, uh, this isn't like Kingdom Hearts on proud mode. <laughs> Patrick oh Klepek talking about being at the top of the mountain. Meanwhile, Rob Zachney climbing Everest in the background. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I do think you're right. And I do think it's – there was a moment we were talking to to Ben Pack from Giant Bomb on Twitter yesterday who was really tweeting through it. Shout outs to Ben. Apologies. Uh, apologies. Mm, I was a dick. You were a dick, but – there were some bad tweets. There were some bad tweets. He was tweeting through it. This happens. Wait, did that thread evolve? Oh, bro, no. just don't know. You, you, you tweet through something and then it's behind you. The The point is, uh, there's a moment at which he was talking to me about hard games as being a subgenre of game. They're like difficult games as a genre. And I think I disagree. Be, one, because difficulty changes over time. We've talked about this before. Demon Souls is not the hard game it once was. If you, if you uh, was it massacre is usually like yes. a subgenre that's that's like attached. Even to inside it. of that realm, the thing of like I want to be the guy, which was like held up as the number one one of these. Right. Uh, that that community has made it such that like that community can beat that game way easier than they can build, beat some of the games that they've built since then. Right. Like difficulty as a subgenre doesn't work for me because it like disability is socially constructed and built around like a set of conventions and uh, controller interfaces and a billion other things that could change the way difficulty works. But I do think. Think that uh, like you, Rob. I do. I personally am happy to play games that push me up against the wall, as long as like I feel like that. I mean, this goes back to this question of balance and desired experience, right? Um, you know, I like losing in XCOM. <laughs> you know, I like people dying. You know, I like, in general. No, just in video games. In XCOM, uh, you know that <laughs> I I like the feeling of losing a character in a roguelike and having to start over. And like, what have I learned? Um, you can go watch those videos of me playing Kerbal with Vinny and Alex, which people should do because those are good videos. And like, how enjoyable everything falling apart was. Um, I, so maybe that's that's actually what I want is not I want people to play more hard games. I want people to I, I want there to be a culture wherein failure does not mean failure in the way that we mean it. Where in which honestly bouncing off of a game shouldn't mean that you're a loser somehow for having done that. Right. I got so a lot of great stuff out of Hollow Knight. I didn't get through it. That game is hard. It, for, it's hard in general. And it's very hard for me because I don't have great skill at platforming. But I don't feel like I like missed uh, that I'm uh, my experience was lesser in some way, and I was happy to have failed in, in that way. I think to be less dickish than I was a moment ago myself. Thank you. I think <laughs> my point is maybe reconsider what we mean by difficulty, redefine it uh, a little bit. Like there are so many different versions of difficulty that exist across different genres, and a lot of other genres still find ways to make the core of the experience accessible to other people. I'm an asshole with a wheel and pedal sitting on my dining <laughs> yep. room table yep. right now you are. because I don't know where to put them, but damn it, I need a wheel and pedal. So now they live uh, as the centerpiece of my dining room table. And I do that because like, for me, that's how I want to experience racing games. But, 
And I think that allows me to play them at a higher level, like because they are literally Sims. And so there's a sort of granular input that's possible with that configuration that is just straight up harder with a con- like a, a controller. But I'm yeah. not out here saying like, you know, they shouldn't even have a controller mode for this shit. <laughs> you shouldn't. Wait, assisted steering to help people with thumbstick controls? Please. And it's just, this is the part of this that's you want weird aim to me. Assist? Like, no, point the Glock at the screen and pull the trigger, motherfucker. <laughs> Everything has to be lethal enforcers now, damn it. No, no it's, mm. but this is, this is kind of what, this is kind of, I think what I do find strange about this entire thing is this is a really narrow place for this conversation to happen over and over again. Yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, there's so many other types of games where Difficulty discourse, like there isn't even discourse because the problem has basically been solved and rendered invisible. Yeah. And so it is so strange that to see this as being like, this is the only way this experience can exist. Meanwhile, like, you know, in racing land, you open up settings and there's like <laughs> 20 different versions of like how you want your fucking car to drive. Right. Do you it, want a little stability control? Totally. A lot. Like. What like what does that mean? But in if sports you need games, it, you know, and it's there. In, on sports games, you go online and find various settings for not only how the game runs and like how the ball moves and the degree to which passes are accurate versus or like tight versus loose, but how the referees, ju- the virtual referees, judge the play on the field. How often they call different penalties. Like those are games in which. Not only has it become standard to allow that, but the the communities have come around to build like, hey, here's a really good set of arcade-ish settings to go play Madden. You can set up MLB The Show to be so realistic that you will stand there completely still as a statue as a pitch whips past you because it all unfolded way too fast for you to internalize. <laughs> right. Like you can have the experience right. of like, what would it like? To, what would it be like to have like a hundred mile an hour fastball thrown at you? Well, here's what it's like. It's past you before you know what to do, but mm-hmm. that's not fun. And so we give you the experience of like, what would it be like to be someone capable of hitting a hundred <laughs> mile an hour fastball? Right. Well, like, which I think to me, like, hmm. so the thing I was going to say before is like Patrick, I loved my, I love my experience with games like this that um, are how do I want to frame this? I think the thing I want to say is there's an, maybe a degree of irony here because Sekiro was perfectly balanced for me. I, I took to it in a way that I don't think even people on this call or people in our Discord chat have taken to it in terms of just like – yeah, I took to Bloodborne right. in the way that you are taking right. to Sekiro. And Bloodborne I did not take to in the same way. Exactly. Um, and – Part of the thing is like, would I snap my fingers and lose that balance? Because I can imagine a world in which that happens. I think it's easy to be like, they could just add an easy mode and it would be, everything would be fine. But I think the second that that this starts to happen, sure, of course, my experience may end up differently. Maybe they say, okay, well, to get to the mode that Austin wants to be, the difficulty that Austin is enjoying, again, difficulty is this big reductive word, to get to the set of, of attributes and sliders and everything else that I really work with, maybe I have to get to New Game Plus ones. Or maybe I, my initial playthrough is just off somehow. I think I'm willing to make that sacrifice. I had such a good time with it. And so much of that time didn't just come from, you know, uh, the way in which combat encounters played out that I, 
I'm willing to risk that in exchange for opening it up and allowing people to either customize some of that stuff or moving into a world in which there is just a flat, different experience at the baseline or that there's another lower accessible, you know, an easy mode, quote unquote. <sighs> can't you can't you just easily imagine they're like from narratively finding a way yes. to tie all this shit in? They do the it in the game, game. already. Like, it is yeah. so, there's right, a it moment so where you get a ima- fucking right. demon that oh yeah so have you gone to the demon bell I got the demon bell yeah so there's a bell you can ring in this game to make it harder I have not done it's, that it's yet. a it's okay. an alternate area inside of the temple and like you ring a bell there's a bell that's like yo you ring this bell uh oh you're gonna it basically says like um taking on challenges is a virtue and will be rewarded but don't but beware because challenges are hard it's just better loot it's better loot and better XP and so like. There's a that's and that's in your first gameplay. Yeah. Your first time through. So like they're already and I put it on. Yeah. Because I want I want more loot. I want more XP. I, and I I'm put happy. it on. Turn it off before bosses. Me too. That's exactly, exactly what I do. Hundred exactly, percent what I do. Yeah. I want the higher. You gotta de- tell me where to go get this. Shit. I'll that's tell good. You. I'll tell you. Uh, go to. You've already. Mm, I'll tell you. No, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll yeah. tell you offline. Yeah. I was like, "Have you been there yet? You haven't." Um, I've got a fever. And he has it. How is more demon bell? Because it's a sideway through. I've been, but I've been there. Yeah, but and you, he's, you can get there different ways. There's okay, two ways okay, into yeah. that room. Okay. All right, stop yeah, it. Yeah. Anyway, stop it. Stop anyway, it. the point is like... We need to take a break. It's not... No. <laughs> <laughs> this is now the Dark Souls of podcast. God damn Austin, it. You know what? the final I, boss you know of the segment transition. I refuse. I, yeah, it's, yeah I, I, I sent you that 800 me. word essay. <laughs> um, but no, like this is a game DM, that already DM, does do DM, that. DM, DM, DM. <laughs> Yeah, that's the way to get my attention, Patrick. Send me a fucking essay in my DMs. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. Anyway, the point is I would happily sacrifice that experience if it meant that it, the game became a little bit more accessible. But it makes it a weird conversation sure. to have because I am genu- because I genuinely had – this might be my favorite game I've played since Breath of the Wild in terms of just like pure, brought me into it, didn't want to put it down, you know, dreamt about it at night, am very sad to be done with it, but also I'm not going to play New Game Plus because I don't want to get fucked over with DLC, even though I might, they might not do it. That I, so we've been through that. But like, really, I there. I think Heather, was it he- Heather who wrote a piece this week? Um, that was like, I wish I could delete my brain so I could replay <laughs> uh, Sekiro for the first time. Like, that is extremely me. I mean, that's, that's, that's the quintessential, like, Souls fan is like the desperation for want wanting that that's what makes Sekiro for its differentiation like so pleasurable is because it's the closest you can get to climbing the mountain all over again where you don't know what the lessons are that you even have to learn which is just not true of like Dark Souls 1, 2, 3 um because it's so iterative and like yes like these are games that if I could fucking zap me out like if I could play Bloodmort again oh my god like that would that would be such a delight but then you just you know Sekiro is part of the and I think I mentioned this in the piece was like, uh, wow, they actually can do it. Like they can step so they can stay in the lane, but change, you know, what's happening in there enough that like, damn, it's awfully close to what it was like to do that all over again. Totally. Um, the last thing I just want to shout out is to go is that there's a great there's a really useful book on thinking about this and, and about thinking about games as configuration and configurable, um, uh, which is called – I like it a lot because I'm like a, a theory person, uh, like a critical theory person. Uh, but uh, Gaming by Alexander Galloway, Gaming uh, Essays on Algorithmic Culture um, by Alexander Galloway uh, is a gr- – is it the whole book or is it just – no, is Gaming Essays mm, – is it just – Yes, I'm right. That is the name of the book. Uh, has a, a great section. I mean, like, it's a through line is that, like, for Galloway, games are about configuration. 
the proto-verb, the er-verb that every game is about is about configuration. It's about configuring your op- – not just like what are the options on the screen but also how your character exists in a space and everything else. Um, I, you know, it's a, it's a long book and I don't agree with everything that he's written there. But it's a very useful way to start thinking about the stuff Rob was just setting up, which is that for many games – they lean into that notion of configuration. They, le- they lean into the notion of like you're customizing your play experience. I think the Souls games and From games in general have done that really well, especially when you think, say From games in general and start thinking about Armored Core, which is literally a game about <laughs> building a giant robot out of little pieces until you get a play experience you really like. That's a piece I should write. Um, uh, the more that they do that, I, the more that games are willing to do that and, and like accept that as a part of who they are, it tends to be the more that I like it because there's more for me to tinker with. Um, Anyway, we should take that break. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Patrick, what is this tweet that you want us to know? I, I just want to hear the reactions from the people in the room. All right. I'm worried. John Cho is Spike Spiegel in the Cowboy Bebop live action adaptation by Netflix. Yeah. Also uh, starring uh, Mustafa Shakir, I believe it, uh, from Luke Cage is Jet Black. Daniela Pineda from Jurassic mm-hmm. Park Fallen Kingdom is Faye Valentine. And Alex Hassel is Vicious. Ten episodes. Ten episodes is the right amount of episodes. That's a really interesting set. Mm. I uh, sadly had already seen this, Patrick, and sent it to like three different people. I knew. I, well, I, that's like about 30 minutes ago. I said we should take a break. I want to read a tweet because I knew you were sitting at your fucking computer and uh-huh. you were going to see this uh-huh. break. Um, I think it's a really interesting cast. I'm glad they cast uh, uh, an, an Asian-American actor. I think uh, John Cho is American. Is he Canadian? I don't know where John Cho is from. Um Anyway, uh, an actor of, of Asian descent, Korean-American is, is uh, what John Cho is, um, as Spike. And I'm just really glad that it's 10 episodes. I was really worried that it would be like 13 or 26 or like that they would stretch. And I think the idea of – How much is the original anime? 26. 26 plus a movie. Oh, weird. It looks like they left out Ed. Hmm. They just probably didn't cast Ed yet. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure she's in there, uh, as essential as she is they, to the plot. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sorry. I shouldn't do that. <laughs> we're such. We're, I am. I do not want to do that to my inbox. I really don't. <laughs> uh, it's too late, hey, everyone. It's too. You can find Rob on Twitter yeah, at, at Rob Zachney. Who? <laughs> uh, I'm actually. That's that's actually really exciting. I would not have anticipated. Like I don't. John Cho is not who I would have immediately thought of no, me either. for that role. Mostly because I view John Cho as having a little too much of like the kind of charisma that Cary Grant had, right? Yeah. Just a really like polished, uh, you know, 
cool, but not like, but not like kind of cool and bedraggled the way Spike Spiegel is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm very but curious to see him like with, uh, like a five o'clock shadow and a cigarette hanging out of his mouth and like a a dirty suit and his hair a little tussled. He could do oh, it. Oh yeah, no, he's ter- he's terrific. Like I'm just excited to see this performance. Like I am now pretty much all the way in. Yeah, me too. I I like. It's going to be a different thing, and I'm cool with that. Like, I, I made peace with – I love Cowboy Bebop, I think, but I also don't think it's a perfect show. Again, it's, it might be one of my favorite shows of all time, but I think that it has some issues, especially things that uh, would today have gotten it a lot more criticism around the way it handles women. Um, the opportunity for a new creative director to, like, take a lead and, like, try to redo some of that story is super interesting to me. I'm – all the way here for creative adaptations, even if I end up hating it. I might hate it. Like, it might just not be good, but the thing that, the reason I will hate it will not be, it is not the thing that already exists and that I own on a shelf and have seen 70 times. Do you know what I mean? Like, the thing that will make me not like it is if it's not good. That said- Are just gonna, like, re-record the music? How is that, how is that gonna wait, work for What? Him? Are they doing what? that? No, I don't know. I'm just curious, because, like, I, I, I've seen a handful of episodes of Cowboy Bebop, yeah. but, like, have listened to the soundtrack, like, innumerable times, and yeah. I'm just curious, like, oh, how they handle- because you can't extract, like, the music from that. Like, I'm just curious what they do. They just, like, recover it? I bet it's a different like, tone. So I bet it's a variety piece. Yeah. Shakira played Jet Black, one of the few honest cops in the solar system, before an ultimate betrayal robbed him of all that he loved, blah, blah, blah. Of course. Jet is an inveterate jazz enthusiast and captain of the bebop. Is that how they're going to weave it in? Because, like, Jet wasn't, like, a particularly jazzy dude in right. the series. Oh, interesting. Uh, but what if... No, he was... Yeah. Was he? Yeah, there's lots of scenes of him like talking about Charles Mingus to Spike in an elevator and like lecturing other people if he the same way that Spike is a fan of Bruce Lee films and old martial arts films, Jet is a fan of classic jazz from before the the gates were opened and everyone lived on earth and blah blah blah. Um I love Cowboy Bebop so fucking much. It's so good. Uh, but I bet you're right. I bet that's how they're gonna do it, is like I bet it'll be diegetic sometimes. I bet it'll be and I also think my suspicion is that they will not just use that same soundtrack that they'll either record new material probably not with yoko kano um mm. probably uh they will probably license jazz music mm. like miles davis will just be in this hmm. right uh I, I could so easily imagine them doing that outside of tank which will probably still be the intro right but yeah. it better be tank and not like Skrillex's what was that disastrous tank. uh no, no 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 but what they did for the ghost in, in the shell uh where they did the Ghost in the Shell theme, but it was a new EDM mix. Was that literally By... a Skrillex mix? Yeah, that was a Skrillex mix. Are you, thinking, are you sure you're not thinking Skrillex? of the Syndicate EA game? No, no, no it, was, it was a... <laughs> I'm oh, pretty sure. Here it is, here it is, here it is. Uh, Ghost in the Shell. I don't... Th- oh, it was no, Steve no, Aoki. It was Steve yeah, Aoki. Steve of course it was Steve Aoki. <laughs> yeah. God. Yeah. Oh, man, the Ghost in the Shell soundtrack is so fucking good. The original. Well, this is the thing, right? Is like... Some things are perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and one of them is the Cowboy Bebop soundtrack. Um, or most, much of it, a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am so curious to see what this looks like. And I, and I at once want to be like, I hope it's 10, 10 stories, 10 new episodes that have nothing to do with the original 26, but also could totally see them just being like, all right, we're going to do. Vicious I don't know. Yeah, yeah, but you can tell a different story. You can yeah. tell how many episodes is Vicious going to be in. Is it going to be more than five? Because then it's more <laughs> than yeah. the fucking show. <laughs> Cowboy Bebop episode list. Patrick, you should watch Cowboy Bebop. You could rewatch I it. I watched the like first. I think like back when I would 
when anime like DVDs were super expensive, like to to buy, and they would like you know dish them out at like three or four episodes at a time. Like I remember, I got into Cowboy Bebop, and I bought like the first like couple of volumes, and then never watched the end of the series, and just haven't gotten around to. Uh, I, yeah, but I watched like the majority of Cowboy Bebop in, in high school. Mostly, yeah, I got in through the soundtrack and then just like continued to like listen to that. Is that on Spotify? I'm going to listen to that the rest of the it's day. It's not on Spotify. There are lots <laughs> no? of like fan oh, I'm going to have to go to fucking YouTube. And, yeah, like, dude, you are. Uh, I can hook you up, Patrick. Oh, you okay, got to connect? As was done for me. <laughs> or you could have the, the songs will all be mislabeled years ago. and we'll have the incorrect artist it'll be a very Napster experience <laughs> oh they, my god, they will have oh various, god. It'll be, half of them will be under Yoko Kano and the seatbelt half of them will be under the seatbelt half of them there's three halves but guess what it keeps going Just apparently Nobu Oimatsu wrote a bunch for it didn't know that but according to these files I have uh, god um, mm. can we talk more about video games is there more Video, yeah, video game stuff that's happening. What do you what do y'all do play any more stuff at PAX you want to touch on before we leave PAX East 2019 in the rear view? Rob, what about you? Uh so I played an interesting game that was uh you familiar with a game called A Force More Powerful? Either mm-hmm. of you? Mm-mm. It was an, it was a strategy game about nonviolent resistance. It's about like okay. coalition building and like undermining like authoritarian regimes via a combination of like persuasion, soft power, uh, you know, direct action, stuff like that. Um, so there's a game called Through the Darkest of Times uh, that is basically that, but set in the early years of uh, Nazi Germany. And basically you play a bunch of... Hmm leftists and some just like constitutional centrists who see the danger that like the Nazi party and Adolf Hitler pose and begin like a campaign of resistance uh, in Berlin. And a lot of the series is sort of unfold by turn and you have sort of your core leadership team and each turn you sort of send them out on missions, right? You can send them out to just go talk to friends and see if you can recruit them to our uh, faction or maybe you can go and buy uh, large stacks of like printing paper for distributing pamphlets. Pamphlets. Uh, maybe you want to take part in a protest march. Maybe you want to organize a protest march. And at first, it's all very easy because like the regime hasn't really consolidated much power. But in this demo, I played at Pax East. It was actually cool how it starts to play out. It's playing out sort of in I think week long or two week chunks, and so the temperature basically keeps rising in terms of how dangerous the regime is. And so at first, you know, the first weeks after Hitler takes power, nothing really changes. You just start, you can start going around to people and being like, Hey, you know, this, this Hitler guy seems like he's up to no good and get them to join your faction. But then over the course of, you know, a few weeks later, suddenly there's going to be brown shirts in the street. And then there's going to be uh, Gestapo. Uh, investigating like subversive activities. And then you have to start really paying attention to how risky is each action you're undertaking. It is not risky necessarily to just talk to a bunch of people at work about like how they feel about how things are going in Germany. It is risky to go distribute uh, uh, anti-Nazi leaflets at a university campus. And the thing you have to watch out for is – you know, people can get arrested 
uh, people like your core leadership team, the ma- the major characters that you're using to sort of go on these tasks will say things like, man, th- I didn't sign up for this. Like, I think, you know, if I get caught doing this again, I think they're going to kill me. Uh, and I got a family. I can't do this anymore. So peace. And it was a really interesting game. It was really bleak because there are some like interactive fiction, like story beats as well, where like, for instance, the Reichstag fire, uh, is a really cool sequence in that where you're sort of, you know, there with onlookers as the Reichstag is burning down. And famously, this is a thing the Nazis did themselves. Uh, the Nazis burned the Reichstag, uh, and then blamed leftists and anti-Nazi, uh, resistance groups for the Reichstag fire. And that was so when you say like something is the Reichstag fire of such and such, yes. uh, this is what they mean. It was a thing that the Nazis transparently did themselves and used to mobilize a crackdown uh, on dissent within Germany. So you're there watching the Reichstag burn and like already there's brown shirts there, uh, you know, kind of. Uh, throwing their weight around. But as you're talking to some people, you know, some are very eager to believe like, oh, but the communists did it. Yeah. And then you see like a, just a, you know, a guy from a trade union just, you know, he's he's watching this happen. And you turn to him and he's like, man, this is all going to come back on us, isn't it? Yep. Just watch. And huh. it gets like, and if you get caught, like it seems like it's sort of a three strikes and you're out thing. You get caught once, you get questioned, uh, maybe lightly roughed up. You get caught twice you are in jail for weeks and they kick the hell out of you. Uh, and the implication is like you caught the third time. Um, you're never coming out of that prison. And so you have to be really careful about it's this sort of tension between you do have to take like meaningful action, but you also need to fly beneath the regime's radar. It was a cool game. I don't know that it's going to be fun. Uh, <laughs> I don't know the game like this has it in it. To it's be wild that the games that we spend time with uh, at PAX East were this and <laughs> Warsaw, a game about the failed Warsaw <laughs> uprising in which uh, th- tens of thousands of Polish resistance fighters and then hundreds of thousands of, of civilian <clears throat> Poles were killed, really, by the Nazis, really on the, the upswing these days. I actually think it's... it's well, but it's, you know, it's, it's speaking culture, to something. Yes. Well, right. Like, it takes a couple of years before you see... You know, we talk about this often in terms of, like, an indie game does something interesting. It's like, oh, cool. Well, we'll see that in AAA games in a couple of years. Like, it's not surprising that it's 2019 and then the influence of 2016 is now percolating into, you know, both consciously and subconsciously into a lot of games that are clearly speaking to, you know, a, a lot of similar themes. Can so you win? Just Pardon? Can you win? I don't know. Okay. I like, like there was no one there for me to talk to. Um, because this but- was one of the things that came up during Warsaw. Was like you asked pretty pointedly, like, so are you, are you going to win this thing that historically was this great national tragedy that led to the deaths of of tons of people at the hand, the killings of a, of a ton of people in the yeah. hands of Nazis? Um, uh, and then he was like, no, no, like this. There is a way for you to succeed. You can survive. You can survive. You can get out, uh, and you can yeah. do your best to help people along the way. But like, we're not going to rewrite history. It's important for us to center that. So I'm curious. Not that yeah, I think which, I don't think there's an easy answer for like which of those is the I don't think either of them is the right way. I think there's something productive and valuable in both. So, but here's just a weird thing though. So this game is being published by Handy Games. Handy Games, and I'm quoting from their website right now, is a THQ Nordic family member. Mm-hmm. And uh-huh. this mm-hmm. is why I was kind of bummed that no developers were there. 
Because, like, clearly this is a game that's very historically literate about, uh, you know, literally what was happening week by week in Nazi Germany and what it was like to be there at the time and sort of the quickness with which ordinary people are mobilized to become monsters or tacitly support monsters. And you're all doing this at the THQ Nordic booth. Uh, Only weeks after they go on 8chan to promote their games and sort of pal around with 8chaners. Yeah. And only weeks, you know, only a couple weeks since the Christchurch shootings were live streamed on 8chan. Uh, clips were shared around on 8chan. And, like, there was a lot of chatter on that we- on that website, on that social network about, you know, the, the shooting and, like, uh, you know, plans to put Islamophobia into violent direct action. Uh, and I really have no idea how you can publish a game like this for a publisher that thinks that something like that is not only okay, but is like a cute, wacky thing to do. Um, I mean, the answer that is sort of like, you're saying you don't understand how a publisher could be the, because I understand how the developer ends up in that situation, which is you go like, Oh fuck. We need to ship this game. We need a publisher. Yeah. Uh, who should we work with? I hear THQ Nordic. Money. Who's got money? THQ Nordic does apparently. No, don't know how they're getting it, but they got it. It's it's. I think. Yeah. You, but but that discrepancy is real, and I can't imagine. And you're not going to be able to play that game when it comes out without having that hang over the game, even if it's unfair to the people who developed it. You cannot extract what its publisher did. You can't help but think about that yep. in your mind as and, you wa- as you play it, and it's an extraordinary thing the publisher did. Like this yeah. is this is yeah incredibly unusual. Like there, yes, a lot of people pretend not to see, uh, you know, the the Nazi in the room, the white supremacist in the room. Uh, you know, we you know we all play launch games on a platform uh, that is full of like you know bigoted oh yeah uh, speech, but. At the same time, that still stops short of going on 8chan uh, and going out of your way to say to a community like that, yeah, we see you. We're cool. Don't worry about it. Uh, That makes it very hard to be comfortable with a game like this coming out from a publisher like that. It really does. Yeah. Because that's where the money goes to some degree, right? Yeah. Presumably, I mean, we don't know what the what the deal is there, but presumably, THU Nordic will get a cut, uh, a, a substantial cut of any any purchase you make, which is tough. And because like I want to support, and probably will still support this game based on the fact that they're willing to to try to tackle issues like this. Um, but it does not make me sit. It doesn't sit well with me that part of my money goes in that direction, and I wouldn't. Hold it against anyone who was like, "No, nah, I'm just going to skip on all THQ Nordic shit for for the indefinite future." Given all that, um, I, it's it's a tough one to unpack. I don't know, I don't know where I come down on that, um, and I'm going to sit with it more and think about it. If people have thoughts on it on their own, please in the comment or the the form thread for this. I'd love to have people talk through some of that stuff because it's a very unique situation in which 
you know, and we know because we spoke to some devs, Not, I'm not saying from the studio, but from studios that are also making games that have an ethos and a mission that goes against that sort of, that goes against, for instance, uh, Nazis and fascism and well, all of the other trash that that is incubated on sites like 8chan and like who reach out to us and go, I fucking hate this. I cannot raise my voice without feeling like I'm going to get fired or get passed over for promotion or get let go when we ship because that's when cuts hit. And I am pretty torn on what to do around that. Well, and here's the other thing. One of the major things a publisher can do for you is promotion and marketing. Yep. Uh, THQ can't do that here because like if, you know, if if THQ Nordic is coming to me to talk about like through the darkest of times, my first question is going to be like, Great. How do you square uh, your publication and marketing of a game like Through the Darkest of Times with the fact that your publishing and marketing department uh, apparently views 8chan as a viable uh, marketing and promotion channel? You know, I mean, that's like literally there's nothing that THQ Nordic can say about this game that doesn't immediately lead back to that. Because as far as we can tell... That's kind of who you are as a company right now until you prove otherwise. Um, I'll, you know, so the develop, you know, I'm happy to talk to the developers, but in terms of like what THQ Nordic brings to the table here, um, you know, it's a really ugly stench of, uh, you know, self-serving hypocrisy. Yeah. Yeah. It, I think that's fair. Anyone else see anything at PAX East? <laughs> um. I, I I just want to briefly I because folks have asked I, I had a chance to play the demo of uh, Man of Madon which is the, oh, yeah. the game from um, the Until Dawn uh, developers uh, Super Massive I can't er, no right maybe I can't remember the folks that made Until Dawn um, are doing a trilogy of poor games at least it's starting as a trilogy and may go beyond that. Um, uh, in which they're doing sort of a shorter, not quite like it's an hour, but like as opposed to Until Dawn, which is like 10 to 12 hours, like something that's more like six hours, a little more digestible if you wanted to do two short sittings or one really long sitting um, uh, and play. And uh, so uh, the <laughs> they made me wait for a long time to play the game because they're like, we want you. They were next to a booth that had very loud speakers. And they're like, they wanted to put me at the one as far away from the speaker. So they, even though there were open spots for me to play the game, they wanted me deep in the corner as far away from the noise as possible. Put the headphones on. Um, could still hear the shit out of those speakers because they were loud. Mm-hmm. Um, and so an unideal environment to play a horror game, you know, a game that is 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 absolutely rooted in atmosphere and getting yourself in a certain mode and a feeling, um, especially if you, like me, want to be scared. Some people put on distractions because they, they they need that in order to get through a horror game. But for me, it's like, nah, let's do this. Like, uh, you know. Um, and so that was impossible to do. Plus the demo is really abbreviated and kind of jumping around. Um, it was really hard for me to tell what to make of, of of the game. Like, is this a big step down from Until Dawn? I don't know. Is it a bad demo? Is it the noise? So uh, hard to come up with really concrete thoughts, except that like I want to play more horror games from that studio. Um, but I, I don't have any like real, unfortunately, uh, grand takeaways from uh, Man and Madon. The other one that I uh, played at that booth because Namco was publishing both was I played that new Double Fine game, Rad, um, which is announced as part of uh, one of Nintendo's uh, direct um, streams. They're, it's basically Double Fine doing a roguelike um, with the lead designer, Lee Perry, who worked on stacking and 
uh, Headlander, a really excellent uh, Metroid-style game that people should check out um, from a couple of years back. Um, and like the basic pitch of Rad is that it's the post-post-apocalypse. So there was an apocalypse, and then a rel- a group of beings came to be in the apocalypse, and then they wiped themselves out again through means that are unclear. And so you are part of a group of people that are uh, tr- trying to use the technology that that group of beings uh, created so that you can survive in the post-post-apocalypse. Um, some interesting things, like they're trying to, you know, their general pitch is like, what if roguelike, but more, we're talking about accessible, but it's like roguelikes are often structured in a, in a way that is not dissimilar from uh, so, uh, from software Souls types games in which they are meant to be punishing and, and difficult, and that's part of the appeal, but also means that a lot of people can't quite get into them um, for understandable reasons. They're trying to make something that has like a more accessible skill curve um, that takes a lot of the fun elements of a roguelike, but it doesn't make it nearly as like a... Roguelikes tend to be one-shots where you die very quickly. That doesn't happen in Rad. Um, some of its like interesting main hooks are... You are... All of like the the buffs that you get, like the the weird powers, like the growths out of your back that like allow you to do different mechanical things, are randomized. And so when you come in, uh, you just don't know what like your rad, like what the the radioactive elements mm-hmm. of the world are going to do to you until you fight enough enemies, you level up, and then I don't know, you might get a growth out of your back that is in like the one I got was an auto turret. It was just this little dude who popped out of my back and's like, cool, I'm gonna just shoot got shoot dudes while you're fighting around this world. Um and then my second power up was a like flame arm, and so that stuff is just randomized every time you come into the world. Um, you just don't know what sort of like skills you're going to get uh, as you come in. Um, it's a funny game. It was a fun game to play. Um, like I'm looking forward to see more of what like it's always enjoyable to have like a developer with a, di- a radically different sensibility come into a genre that you have certain understandings of how how you're going to do a thing and, and, and double find is a studio that they won't adhere to that. And one small thing they said that was cool was uh, usually in post apocalypses, it's always humans fighting each other. And they said baseline. No, actually what if all humans were just trying to get by and were kind to one another and just wanted to give everyone else a leg up. It's like, so all humans in this game are, are just like that. And the things that you're fighting are, are different than that or different sort of factions uh, or, 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 or enemies. It wasn't really clear how exactly that works out. Like anytime you find a human, they're going to put their hand out and they might take your money, but they are going to try and help you. So those are the other games that I, I checked out at PAX. Cool. Uh, the one I want to shout out is uh, Hardcore Mecha, which of course okay. I saw. <laughs> was that the last mech game you were trying to check out yeah, before we left? I did. I saw it. Oh, it hang on. Called... Do the children need to stop listening? Everyone Do should you stop need listening. to get into Hardcore Mecha? The whole podcast and... is already marked as explicit. Don't worry. About <laughs> it. All right, phew, that's good. Yeah, um, we're good. <laughs> this is a game that was kickstarted uh, back in, God, was it 2015? I don't know, 2016 uh, as a different name. The name was Code Hardcore. And they're like, we got to keep the hardcore. <laughs> We got to keep the, the hardcore in here. We need to make it very clear that it's about robots and nothing else. <laughs> uh, it's made by a, a studio called Rocket Punch Games, uh, oh, which I is in it. Beijing. What do you Their get? Their cores are hard. Oh, they're robots. They're robots. They got hard cores. Um, oh. It's it's really it, okay. So I should uh, the setup for it is is that everyone should Google the name of the game and look at the trailer. Uh, they just released a uh, a narrative trailer earlier this year. Um, it is a really cool looking two D action game. I'll just pop a 
uh, like this the campaign trailer in the um, in the chat for y'all. Uh, it is a really beautiful looking kind of retro-y vibe. Uh, like it, it reminds me of a lot of the SNES um, mech games. Uh, or like that era, uh, there's uh, – what the hell is the one called that I can't think of the name of right now? Um, not Assault Suit Lanos because that was the newer one that felt like – I guess it's like the Assault Suit series was the was the one I'm thinking of. Oh, God, there's a specific SNES mech game that I cannot fucking think of the name of that is uh, Metal Warriors. Metal Warriors, which was like a game that you could like hop into a mech and hop out of a mech and uh, explore like a 2D environment and get into like all sorts of wild shit. Um, it was really cool. I played a multiplayer demo uh, of it. Uh, the mech designs are really cool. You're kind of having like an arena-based like uh, multiplayer duel against a bunch of other things. I had a mech that had a um, like a a a pile bunker or pile driver, which is like a big spike arm, like a spike attached to its arm that when it punches, it then like shoots a bullet to drive the punch like the spike further into the enemy and the animations are just like so crisp and smooth. Um, and the, the designs are all really cool. I had a really good time with it. Um, people should check that out. Um, what else? Uh, I, briefly, I mean, on the note of, um, you know, similar, I guess maybe to, to man of Medan in that I want to, I hope that I come around on it as it releases, uh, is a game called we are the caretakers. Um, which is by a studio called, what is it, Heart, Heart Something Games. They made a game called Hero Generations back in, I want to say 2015. Uh, I was still, I had maybe 2014 because I was still in Canada at the time. Um, Heart-shaped games. Uh, that was like a really cool roguelike. I really like that. Uh, I've kind of followed their work on and off for a few years. I should say that one of the writers on this game has written for us, uh, I don't know if it's Xavier Nelson or Zalavier Nelson. Zalavier. Zalavier Nelson. Thank you. Uh, I've looked up pronunciation. I've never found it and I've never heard him pronounce his own name. Uh, he wrote about Superman for us once, which was neat. Uh, but he's writing on the game. And it is a – I mean it's pitched as like an Afrofuturist uh, – tactics and strategy game like a squad i guess it's actually pitched as a squad management game in which you are playing a group that is um protecting a a, a region of the world where it has been kind of protected by a magical shield for for years an energy barrier for you know centuries or millennia and that barrier has fallen and now all the natural resources and animals there are now under threat from poachers um and it just didn't work for me. Um, I think for a couple of reasons, and I hope that it's stuff that they can expand upon and address. I mean, I think partially it's an er it's early in in the development cycle. I uh, you know I think it's going to launch in early access sometime in the next year or so. Um, but I don't know that it's you know I, I don't want to ding it for things like oh the animations aren't there yet or like oh I want to be there to be more enemy you know variations. I think that stuff is all coming. The thing that like wasn't working for me is some of like the core questions and fantasy that it wants to play with. So the the setup that I had, and Rob, I think you also played this and you can confirm if this is the same setup you had, was like, all right, you're going to deploy these three squads into this overworld map where there are a couple of villages um, uh, and a couple of uh, animals that you need to protect. And almost like a very slow RTS, you're moving them around the map and then when they encounter an enemy unit, it goes into a sort of turn-based, almost like JRPG-style battle. Like a, it's not like a XCOM or something like that. You're picking attack options or like a Darkest Dungeon, right? It's like a you have a side, they have a side. 
And it's trying to do something that I think is really – I get where you – how you arrive here. So enemies and all the characters have both HP or vitality and they also have like – Resolve. Resolve. And so you have some attacks that affect vitality and you have some that affect resolve. So the attacks that attack vitality are things like throwing punches or like, you know, doing Afrofuturistic, you know, techno technological attacks. But to affect resolve, there are things that are like, hey, calm down. <laughs> Calm people down or like it's not as bad as like give a speech but it is – that is the vibe certainly, right? Um, use your logic on them. Debate me. <laughs> uh, and then that ends up being also part of the big narrative finale of the demo I played at which you finally run into the people who are like coming in, the leader of the person who was coming in to, to like lead this poaching expedition to kill all these animals. Uh, and he says he's doing it because he wants the horn because the horn could help – could be ground down and turn into a medicine to save his daughter. Um, and then your character goes like, no, that's actually not true. But we have real medicine. And he's like, OK, then. I guess I won't kill them. The end. And I think it – I think you arrive there because what you want is to show nonviolent solutions and you want to show like conflict resolution that isn't about having the highest strength score or about the, having the best guns. But poachers – no. Poachers who take, for instance, rhino horn and, and sell it to people who think it may have particular properties, they know it doesn't have those particular properties. The people who run resource companies in this world, the people who like dump e-waste into African villages to have it be disposed of cheaply or the people who you know mine for, for natural uh, gas or oil and pollute nearby – they don't not understand what they're doing. They don't give a fuck. Um, and so there's a degree to which I I want the game – I hope that the game when it comes out actually engages with bad actors who want to be bad actors and who cannot necessarily be talked down by reason or logic because I think it and underestimates how bad the bad actors in our world actually are. Um, and how those who are not in power often are pushed to violence, not because they are bad people, but because the kind of rational or emotional response does not, so quote, quote unquote, does not actually get the result that would protect them or the things they're trying to protect. I don't know, Rob, do I sound off base here? No. You're shaking your head. Uh, I think I was sort of chuckling because this actually parallels the conversation that Patrick and Danielle and I had about the occupation. The <laughs> oh, interesting. Like, okay. Yep. Literally that also, I think this is a more extreme example even, uh, but I think the occupation also struggles with this idea of there's this idea that, ah, these bad things wouldn't need to happen if only somebody reasoned with, with, with them. Yeah. Uh, if, if only people properly understood their self-interest, yeah. Uh, then bad things wouldn't happen. And the problem is that uh, self-interest doesn't all point in one direction. It's not just a question of finding what the universal-like thing that everyone will agree is in everyone's greater self-interest, and then we just have to identify that and move that move in that direction. That is not how most conflicts work. That's not how most of the world like. That is not how most of the world uh, works right now. That there there are things in tension with each other. There are some there are some games that are zero sum. There are are some options that people simply do not have, even if they know that the path they are on is destructive. And 
I was a bit uncomfortable with the fact that we are the caretakers did kind of end with this, you know, oh, gee, I'm just a simple poacher who thinks this uh, horn is is medicine. This is magic, isn't it? You mean it's not magic? Holy shit. But you got medicine? Great. I guess I guess we're fine then. Uh, that just really did seem to miss a lot of the point uh, and also didn't seem to, in a weird way, it actually didn't seem to successfully humanize, uh, you know, people who, who do poach. Uh, it, it seemed to, to fall short of that. I think the other part of this that concerned me is that I just don't get the game design right now. Um, yeah. The way Vitality and Resolve are working is basically these enemies have two hit point bars. Yeah, there's the physical one. hit points where you just beat the hell out of them. And then there's the Resolve uh, hit points where you own them with facts and logic and put it on YouTube. <laughs> um, and the, in effect, what was happening was I was like, well, I guess I'll just play this nonviolently. So I just started like every character basically had the physical attack or word attack options. So I was just like, all right, I guess I'll keep spamming word attacks and it was mechanically indistinguishable from a physical violent encounter it was you know mechanically it was just i sort of chunked their damage down until they were like ready to put up their hands and then we took them into custody uh and again i understand how you end up like this um De-escalation, non-violent conflict resolution. These are tough things to mechanize, right? These are are tough things to systematize. Uh, But I think right now they haven't really figured out a mechanically interesting way to bring this across. Uh, And it ends up making that part of the game end up feeling really flat. Uh, That it's not, you know... Yeah, it's the non-violent option, but also it kind of is the violent option. It's just you're just depleting a different hit point bar, and that doesn't really end up working. So this this the thing felt way rougher, I suppose, than I was expecting it to. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I was sort of hoping that I would see, ah, you know, clearly this is a good beginning, and I can sort of imagine the 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 path they're on from here going to really good places. Uh, right now. I see what they are attempting to do, but I don't love the directions it's pointing, and some and some of the problems they've chosen to take on uh, seem really difficult to solve. Like, you know, if you ask me, well, how do we make a a combat system where you can have violent and nonviolent solutions? My answer, which I'll freely give you, is I don't know. <laughs> don't look at me man i like you're right it's it's a good it's it's an interesting problem to solve i'm glad someone's out there trying to represent it uh i don't think you've nailed it and no i don't have good suggestions about how you can do that it's like a but like once you open the door as that's a thing you want to do then that's a thing you need to figure out right yeah. um so i hope that they find it i really do uh kata did you see anything else while there yeah i saw uh two games i want to talk about really quickly one of them was a golf game called what the golf which was great name trailer like last year like february 2018 but uh doesn't come out yet it's coming out this year apparently but it's a very funny golf game where you are oftentimes not actually hitting a golf ball like each level is its own like 
discreet pun of some sort. Uh, a lot of references to other games. Um, and it was really fun. Like the, the amount that I played was really fun, but I wonder how, how much, how, how, how many, how, if it has legs rather, yeah. like I kind of left it being like, I pay, I played uh, 18 holes and I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. Um, those were funny. I don't know if I could do another 18. I feel like the, the, like every, every single level has to be a pun, like, and none of them are the same. Yeah. So like it, 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 it like you you're changing mechanics every single time like i can see why it took so long because like you never even like it's not if some some of these things feel like not even in the same like physics engine sometimes it's weird um but um so i'm i'm interested to see how like what other levels of that can look like it was fun but it feels like more golf games yeah no yeah, more you know golf what? games for more sure more golf games for sure absolutely um the other one i wanted to talk about really quickly was elijo um uh, which is a stealth game um, about... Can you spell that? Uh, E-L space H-I-J-O. means the sun or sun in Spanish. Um, uh, a game where um, basically the like opening uh, like cinematic has uh, presumably... Uh, there, there's the character you play, El Hijo, and his mom... Sorry, I'm laughing. Also, Handy Games, a THQ Nordic division. Yeah, yeah, and I was gonna, yeah. Oh shit, yeah. I, uh-huh. I was just putting they it got bought too. in uh, <laughs> July or something last year, apparently, from what I saw. Um, but anyways, they um, uh, your mom like drops you off at some like monastery, essentially, in like a vaguely west, like western bordered, like southwest, like, like yeah, like. New Mexico style. Yeah. Right. Lots of adobo building. Mm -hmm. Like the whole, that whole art style. The art style is great. It looks really good. Um, And it's like just stealth. Like you're trying to escape essentially. And like you don't have any tools for um, the beginning. And then you get like rocks to distract things. But like you don't have any options for like engaging. There's no combat. There's no combat. You don't, yeah. At least in in the five like sections that I played earlier. And um, given, <laughs> uh, I'm just curious about how this game will play out and whether or not it will ever engage with the idea of like who these characters are on the border mm-hmm. and like whether or not they're trying to talk about immigration and people's like obviously they're trying they're talking about people's homes and being like displaced from a home, but. Whether it goes any further in that in the narrative, it still remains to be seen. And I'm like, that I'm curious, and I'm worried that it won't. It will just like play it straight because of it's the just way a- it's- aesthetic trapping as opposed to actually something. I, yeah, exactly. I was hoping for more, you know, um, but we'll have to wait and see until the full game is out. Um, yeah. But- I'm I'm curious. I'm yeah. curious. It is it is being sold as quote an exciting spaghetti western stealth game. That's yeah. That's which that certainly seems to suggest in a different direction uh-huh. than than uh-huh. Nakata was. Hoping. Yeah, but it's I called mean, like, you know, El Hijo. It's still, like it has a name in Spanish. Right. Like that. Right, right. Um, okay. Yeah. It's <laughs> not made by a. Uh, no. Okay. It's I a mean, German company. Okay. Yeah. There's. There's a lot of red flags that are starting to go up. Yes, yes, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Of course, we'll see. I, you know, like this is the thing is like how well, like, go, like, like specifically, someone to, to speak that just go read up on the history of like donut 
County. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like where that game came from. Right. And then just like aesthetically and thematically is you would be probably shocked to like that creator has spoken about their creative journey mm -hmm. in certain uh, aesthetic appropriation they yeah. were doing and then how they found a way to still make the thing they wanted to make without just grabbing something that like that's a cool visual art style. And this game may not be that. Oh. I'm just it is yeah. it is hard not to based on what you said, Kato, not wonder like, yeah. oh, it's just like not and many like, games are like pulling from this shit, so it'll look different. And ultimately my fear is that nobody's gonna talk about it enough for them to notice any sort of or get any right. pushback on that before it comes out. You know? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. So. Fair, 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 fair. No, and I hope that that's I. Ooh. The worst thing would be like, <laughs> oh yeah, we're gonna make a game about uh, about this, but not about it at all. Actually, yeah, that's um, kind of what it feels like where it is. And there are ways in which it can be about it without being like, and and here is ice, right. like, you know what right. I mean? Yeah. Uh, here is the wall is being built. Like there are ways in which you can you can evoke you can begin by evoking a certain time and place. Yeah. And then even if the story doesn't necessarily hit it dead on. Yeah. Can still be aphorism or analogy or metaphor, right? Exactly. And so I'm curious. We'll see. Uh, it's tough. I mean, like <laughs> cool art style, though. I'm watching yeah, some gameplay totally, from. It, totally. um, it is a cool I think art it style. It looks very good. I think they. Um, right, but that's that's yeah. That's, that's the, the worry. Is like, oh, yeah. cool art style, and that's that's where you start, and then you just start uh, climbing up the appropriation <laughs> yep, ladder, yep, yep, and totally. what else looks cool? <laughs> um, on this note, I actually played something that weirdly hit some of these questions huh. dead on in a way I didn't expect, and I'm not even sure where I come down on it yet. Uh, I know we're going really late, but I, it's worth talking about a game that's out that people can go play right now, which is uh, Photographs by 88 Games, which is... Oh, I was meaning to play this. Yeah, Luca... Uh, what is what is his last name? Uh, Luca... Uh, let me check my email. I'll look it up Redwood. while you start Luca Redwood. Um, who is the developer yeah. of 10 million and you have to build a boat. Great game. Great little puzzle games for mobile. Uh, I guess they probably came out on, on PC at some point also. Um, yeah, uh, they came to Steam. Uh, like yeah. really masterful, just, you know, I'm hitting buttons, I'm moving a thing, I'm doing puzzles and like making, they're puzzle games where you're slowly progressing across a kind of meta goal based on how you continue to do these puzzles. It's almost like a run-based puzzle game, hmm. but the this is I'm talking about his past games, um, uh, in which you still like you, ten million is about like doing it like a uh, match three game in which you are like gaining experience so you can power up a dude who is playing an action game, right? Like I feel, isn't that the dynamic of that game? Yeah, I believe that's 10 million. Yeah, and then you have to build a boat is very similar, except you're building a boat and unlocking animals to put in that boat and like eventually sailing around on that boat. It's cool. Those games are really cool. And this is such a different thing from someone mm. who has made what I think are pretty straightforward, you know, puzzle puzzle games with, with like a little light RPG component. Um, Photographs is a uh, narrative game. Uh, it is a game that has puzzles in it, but it's basically a game set around five vignettes. And it says this up front. It says, hey, there are going to be five vignettes. They're about 30 minutes each. They're telling a story both with the design of the game and, and with the puzzles. Or actually, maybe it doesn't say that, but I'm telling you that. Like the design <laughs> of the puzzles and also the kind of uh, story as it unfolds combined to try to communicate something. Um, the basic setup is like, you get a you get a kind of a picture of a place. You know, uh, one of them is a um, uh, like a, a a pool with uh, an adjoining locker room and a diving board. And you're playing over the course of this tragic moment in someone's life. And so as the you do as you complete puzzles, it's like, hey, my name is Claire, and I love diving. Right? It's not exactly what it says, but basically, 
And then you go to a puzzle. Um, and each of the five vignettes is a different style of puzzle. So, for instance, the diving one is all about – it's almost like a pinball game. It's not pinball where you're hitting the buttons, but you're like um, – it's almost like a uh, – what do you call it? What's the – not pinball, but you jump a bunch of balls and it goes like – did it like – like Pachinko? Like Pachinko. It's like a Pachinko puzzle game in mm. which there is – there are sets of bumpers and ramps and stuff and you're trying to figure out the right um, alignment to shoot a single ball to hit a certain point, which is like an icon of this character. And and have it dive into a pool. So you're trying to like line up things. and So that's one set of puzzles. Another one is a sliding block puzzle. Um, another one is like a line drawing puzzle. Like there's all sorts of like the five different puzzle types here. One of them is like a tile placing puzzle game. And all of those are pretty good. And each time you, you successfully do one, the story advances, the board, the, like the level, the, the, the kind of backdrop of the world changes. Um, so maybe a, a, you know, she she scores well in a diving competition and so then the scoreboard updates and you can see her score up there. And then to get into each level, you take photographs by either using your mouse if you're playing on a PC or using your finger if you're playing on a phone to zoom into various places and like it like takes a snapshot basically. Um, the It's such a weird thing. It, it feels like – and I don't mean this as an insult necessarily, but it feels like it's descending from – Someone who played a lot of early Jason Rohrer games, who played Passage and was like, ah, this is the future of gaming. Um, because – and I mean that – I do mean that as both both pejoratively and complimentarily because I think certain things like the kind of pachinko style puzzle game – does some great things about communicating the beauty of diving. It's a story about – that hers is a story about diving, uh, a story about like trying to win, letting your teammates down uh, and eventually falling into a tragic circumstance as you try to you know score well. Um, it's more complicated than that and you'd have to play – it's a 30-minute story. So I'm doing my best not to like spoil what that particular chapter is. Uh, but the, the way that it communicates a, a feeling of beauty and power in the ways in which divers you know, do their art and their, and their sport is really, really effective. Uh, you do – you're like, man, I fucking nailed this. This ball, this pachinko ball thing that I launched bounced off of three things and did a cool spin and like a flip and then it landed in the water perfect. That is a 9.0. It isn't actually scoring you. It's narrow the, the, the time right. you go to 9.0 is because in the narrative, that's when that happens, right? Uh, these are not endlessly playable puzzles that are connected. You know what I mean? There's no like endless mode for each of these puzzles or something. It's telling discrete stories and each of them is a tragedy. Um, and it goes dark. So mm. like, content warning for people who are going to play this game. Um, and it goes dark in a way that I think lands on – and this is where I think it's it's like the kind of edgier early Jason Rohrer stuff where it's like, did you know that games could make you feel a certain way about death? Because they can. And like this is a game that deals with the death of children and like the spectacular death of children. Like when I say spectacular, I mean in the sense of spectacle. Um this is a game that deals with colonialism in one of its chapters in which uh, – I mean the, the chapter is called the, – each chapter is named after the, the lead character. So like the athlete is the one for the diver, right? Or the alchemist is, is like the first one. The one that's about colonialism is uh, a story about someone who ends up turning on his own people and bec becoming kind of part of the assimilated uh, settler colonial like structure and becomes a jailer. 
And then, then that chapter opens by being called The Jailer, right? And it's like, okay, we're dealing with someone who like eventually imprisons and, and guards his own people as they are colonized. Okay, this is this is gonna throw dark. And it goes and it went darker than I imagined it would, even. Um, and I don't know that it always sticks the landing on this stuff. I think sometimes it wants to paint really broad, quick stories about things that that the team clearly cares a lot about. And I think Does the darkness come across as a twist? Yeah. Like a Twilight well, Zone and like only hey, we're doing this. The f- but actually the first one like I think you is every bad. start every story going like, all right. Where's the fucked up thing that's going to happen? That is when you, after the first one, you go, oh, I get what this game is now. Because the first Uh one goes so fucking dark in a way that I don't know that it's earned, but is still going to fuck some people up who play it. Because it's just You got me curious now. You should play it. uh, But again, like for real, Patrick, go in knowing like this is a game that multiple times deals with the death of children. I hear you. Um, The death of children, there's some drug use. Uh, I'm trying to think there's anything else that I I checked. There are no content warnings on this game, right? Like I looked at the app page. I played it now on my PC. I beat it on PC and I'm playing through again on on phone because there's a an ending choice at the end, you pick an ending at the end. And I want to see what the other endings are before any, no one's played it, so I can't just go to YouTube. I've only seen two. One other person has beaten it on YouTube, and so I've seen their ending. And I've seen... Well, I think it came out yesterday? It came out yesterday. No? Your Wednesday. Yeah. Yes, yeah, totally. So th- by the yeah. time you hear this, there are probably three more will be up there, and I'll be fine. One of them will be you. One of them will be me. <laughs> uh, I, no, I didn't record, record my ending. Uh, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't. Um, it's just such a weird thing. Like, it's so... It's very ambitious. It wants to be a story game, and it's beautiful. I think the the art is really good. I think the puzzles are actually fantastic, given that there are like five very there doesn't they are not like um, variations on a similar puzzle design. They just throw it out, move on. They to the throw next it thing. out, they move on, and they do a lot inside of thirty minutes to be like, here is a puzzle. It, it reminds me of the witness a little bit in that you go like, oh, what is the what is the thing here? Right. Excuse me. What is the thing here? And then you go, oh, okay. And then they're gonna vary. They're gonna have variations on it. Some of which really push the boundaries and make you make it difficult to solve. Uh, and some of which are pretty easy. Or and they do the thing. And this is where it gets to be like Passage or um, some of Rohrer's earliest games, like that that school of game design, where it's like, ah, how can we tell you the story through the mechanics of play? Um, so there's one in which a character gets sick, and and once that character gets sick, there's a new thing added to the board that if their representative you know, icon in that in that mechanic hits the thing that made them sick in the first place, you fail, you have to start the puzzle over again because they die, right? Or they they die in the puzzle, but not in the story. The stories don't branch. There's no there's no like, ah, I got through this I guess maybe the last one, one of the stories might have a, 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 a not the last one, but one of the one of the later ones might have a final choice inside of the story, but I actually don't think it matters at all. Um in terms of the outcome. There, it, it's it's such a unique thing. It's Two and a half, three hours long and is, you know, a couple of bucks on on phones, three bucks, four bucks, something like that. Uh, it's 10 bucks on PC. Um, it, I want to support ambitious storytelling like this or ambitious, ambitious experimentation with narrative because mm. I don't think that it's particularly ambitious storytelling in the sense that like this is an experimental narrative work in which the the actual – literary content, the written content is pushing boundaries. But the way it wants to tell stories and the stuff that it's telling stories about is absolutely risk-taking. Um, and uh, there are times in the past where I have like knocked narrative games for fucking up and have been like, ah, this is from a small team that's trying stuff. You know, a year ago, 
last two months ago was when we I went really hard on Red Strings Club, a game that I generally liked, but still had one major issue with the way it did one thing. And that I want to make sure I try to give a little bit of space here for them to try that experimentation. Um, I, I don't know that it works all the way, but I think it's interesting. And I, I think that it's – interesting is not the right word because – I actually think some of it's kind of boring and kind of bad, but I think that the experiment is fascinating to watch unfold as you play it. Um, so that's called photographs. Um, all right, I just downloaded it. All right, I hope you. I, mean, I hope you. I, the, tell me before you pour, before pour some whiskey and cry before you pick the final answer. You the final thing. Uh huh. You should let me know so that we should we should, we should compare okay. notes <laughs> because that way all we right. pick different ones and I can learn what happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How I many do you think okay, they are? All right. Five. There's five endings. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So like, I it's it's pretty clear what it is, and you, I could start a new game on PC and play through all the way, but I'm just gonna do it on my phone, and I'll I'll be there today. Like now that I know all the solutions, I'll blow right through it. Um, anything else, or have we wrapped up? I feel like our energy is all spent. I feel like this is a good moment to. Everyone's hungry. Everyone's hungry it's, for it's, like actual food. For real yeah, food. Our discourse has has gone through us, oh, eating up our our inside. Time for the discourse. Time for yeah, from the discourse to the discourse. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, as Rob logs off. <laughs> Rob, when when you log off, where can people find you? Uh, at savepapajohns.com. <laughs> uh, look, I'm I would keep finding the good fight. Right now. Uh, though it appears that maybe the good fight is over and uh, Papa John is off this. the board of his company. But damn it, he just loves his company so much. He loves his Wait. franchisees. Wait. What? NBA. This is from yesterday. Breaking news. <laughs> pizza, 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 pizza. <laughs> NBA Hall of Famer and perennial pitchman Shaquille O'Neal <laughs> is joining the Papa John's board of directors as its first African-American member. A move the pizza chain hopes will boost its faltering brand after racially insensitive, quote unquote, racially insensitive <laughs> remarks from its founder, Sunk Sales. Wait, they put that in quotes? No, I put it See, in okay. quotes. Okay. That's smart. Like you get Shaq. You don't get Charles Barkley. When no, you this shit up. You get Shaq. Shaq. Let's be real. Papa John's is excited right now. They have Shaquille O'Neal as someone who is willing to jump into the fire with them," said Stephanie Creary, a Wharton management professor who specializes in identity and diversity issues. This is just the beginning for Papa John's. What I'm hoping is that years from now, they'll still be able to claim this incident as being a catalyst for the work that they've done. Because what are consumers going to remember? They're going to remember if Papa John tries to sw- Papa John's tries to sweep its recent controversy under the rug. I go Shaq. While it's great that Shaq is now on the board, the true test of his effectiveness will be whether his perspective is going to be elicited, valued, and integrated into the work that they do. Listen to Shaq. Take Shaq's word into your heart. Absolutely. Shaq is going to be the Shaq is going to be the leader. But I know? say, don't I say, every night before I go to sleep. Listen to Shaq. I think they might be getting more than they bargained for with Shaq because he has already <laughs> said that they need to diversify their leadership team, not only their board. So he clearly doesn't want to be a token minority on the board. Shout outs to Shaq. Hell yeah. They call Shaquille O'Neal a game changer. When oh. I think of Shaq, I think of the gentle giant. 
Here's a guy who over the years has built this wonderful persona of an avuncular figure. He is definitely one of the more storied careers of the NBA. He's in the pantheon, and now he's become a pitchman and the sort of, a sort of king of endorsements. He can bring something that Papa John's desperately needs. To say that we've made a mistake, we were not inclusive. A change in conversation. <laughs> we now recognize this, and we're taking a new turn. We are going in a new direction. That is exciting. I'm not going to lie. Wait, like, one final note. Yeah. <laughs> one final note from Shaquille. O'Neal appears to be pizza, taking, pizza, this, pizza, pizza. <laughs> taking his new role seriously. In an interview with the Associated Press, he said, if you want to enjoy great pizza and feel loved by the people that serve the pizza, you can come back home now. Quote, the daddy is here. <laughs> Thank you, Shaq. Thank you, Big Papa. Thank you. Thank you. Just <sighs> change your name to Papa Shaq. Shares of Papa John's sword more than six points Just on Friday. Quick thing. Have you ever <laughs> contemplated how expensive Papa John's pizzas are, though, relative to their quality? In terms well, of, really just I pay out of my pockets. Yeah. Yeah, no, they, they, cost, cheap. they cost more than a Domino's or a Pizza uh, Maybe they're in the Pizza Hut range. Are they a little more than a Pizza Hut? How much is a Pizza Hut? How much is a Domino's? They're more than a Pizza Domino's Hut. Cheap. Domino's cheap. Domino's cheap. Yeah, yeah, no, sorry. How yeah. much a Papa John's? I'll, you know, you want the, like, yeah, the number? Yeah, what's the number? $32. That's some bullshit. Maybe that's not true. No, but that's for like for like two larges with like a drink and an order of um Okay, okay. Sure. Mod sticks? Yeah, yeah but sure. you get like seven dollars will get you seven pizzas <laughs> in some places. I'm checking. Order any large spe- okay, we should get pizza. Hell yeah. What are their specials? I don't want to put in. I mean the address. real thing is the real reason people order Papa John's is that fucking garlic sauce. Is like, that garlic like, sauce? People, oh yeah, people are like damn. I just especially want that in shit. college, it's that's the whole reason. Sauce. Huh. It is, it is. But like, this is the, this is what this is the this is the play that everyone else is missing. Right. It's not well, better not It is. Shout outs it is to, clarified butter with garlic. Shout outs to fucking pizza bullies in the Maryland DMV area who knows that and fucking aced their garlic sauce. Large pizza, Papa John's, oh. large pepperoni pizza. How much money around the table? What do you think? Large Wait, pepperoni. large pepperoni pizza. Large pepperoni Jones. pizza. Just one large. Is that the pepper- biggest? How many 99. inches? You said nine ninety nine. How many inches yes. is this? Twelve twelve ninety nine. Uh, eight slices. It's three hundred twenty calories. I don't see a. It's not an eighteen, a sixteen inch. I don't see that listed here. A, there is an extra large. There is an extra large. There is okay. Which is ten slices, which tells me it's huh. bigger. <laughs> well, so prices so far on on large was what nine ninety nine from. From Rob, how much? Rob, twelve ninety nine. Kata, nineteen ninety nine. Nineteen ninety nine on the fucking Woo! nose. Are you <laughs> kidding me? That's twenty dollars. That's too much fucking money. Twenty dollars for a pepperoni. This is what I'm saying. You can order if you got a good local place. Chances are they are going to charge you less to deliver that fucking pizza. Yep. Right, totally. Absolutely. But the other part of the Papa John's like value proposition is that with the Papa John's you get that like tabloid of coupons for future Papa John's <laughs> orders. And so you have like the inflated like upfront cost of Papa John's for when like you're just desperate. You're like, damn, I just need then that you're garlic in the ecosystem. sauce. You're in the yeah, ecosystem. Yeah, and then they bring you that. Right. And then you put that on your fridge. And then like when you're like, it's late, you're sad, your willpower is low. You go to like take a beer out of the fridge. Papa, Papa will give you a big hug. Yeah, and it's like, hey, do you want, <laughs> what if I gave you two 
large single topping pizzas and a two liter bottle of Pepsi <laughs> and breadsticks to dip in that garlic sauce for $25. And you're like, ordered. Done. Done. Give Done. me that. That's so much cheaper than it normally is. That's is there like a college you. with like a ridiculous tuition number, but then somehow everyone gets a scholarship for like half tuition? It's the sort of like perceived value of the thing. You can get two medium, two size pizzas from Domino's for five ninety nine each. Jesus, that's like eleven bucks for two. And the pizza is not appreciably different. It's two. It, I think it's different. But you're gonna eat pizza that night. Yeah. No, I'm talking about the. I'm talking about the quality of the pizza overall. is not overall fifteen dollars uh, difference. Yeah, I, I, no, not fifteen dollars different. No, 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 no. I'd say five, five to seven dollar difference. Sure. Yeah, the crust is way better. Yeah. On Papa John's. Oh, so sure. Cato, a moment ago, wow, you're saying ten ninety nine per pizza for two. So, so twenty one bucks for two larges. So basically, the same at Domino's. Right. I don't give a fuck. Like Domino's is not my favorite pizza, and I'm not even like looking at like Grubhub to look at my local pizza situation, which I guarantee is dirt cheap compared to any of this. We live in New York. Pizza is everywhere. Yeah. I was just really worried that like Cato had been. Like, I thought there were actual pizza bullies in Maryland that had, like, roughed Cotto up. Like, Cotto was, like, desperate for Papa John's and no. the garlic sauce. No. And then the pizza bullies showed up and were like, hey, nice garlic sauce, nerd. <laughs> and, like, threw Cotto in a locker and took the pizza sauce. It's very good. Bullies. B-O-L-I-S. <laughs> bullies. Go to your local pizza. What's everyone's favorite local? If you can shout out one pizza place in the world, what would it be? I mean, I already did it. You d- I know, but for Rob and Patrick. Okay, so if you're from Northwest Indiana, I don't know if they're still as good as they used to. My parents used to be. My parents said the last couple times they ordered, it wasn't quite what it used to be. Sure. Rico's Pizza. Can I tell you in something? Lansing. Nothing is what it used to be. These days, 2019, <laughs> everything used to be better. In the old days, things are just slipping away. That, mm. What's the name of the place? <laughs> Rico's Pizza. Rico's Pizza. I hope they're still open. Yeah. Rico, like the law that allows you to bring down an entire uh, organized crime. Okay. Rico. (laughs) Um, Lansing, Michigan. Rico's Pizza. No, uh, Lansing, uh, Illinois, I think. Oh, Illinois. It was on the Illinois-Indiana border, uh, so I can never remember which side they were on. Um, Patrick? I can't do... Local, local, because I moved back home, and I'm not oh. going to tell you where I All get right. my pizza Good from. Call. But people always ask me, I'm going to Chicago. What should I do? Should I just go get deep chest? And there are the chains. You go to Giordano's, places like that. It's fine. It's fine. You you could absolutely do worse. But Pequod's, yeah, of which there is only a couple, um, is is, is is far and away my favorite deep chest pizza. It's not the place that's going to come up first. It might be in like those rankings and stuff like that. It's a little out of the way. Go to the re the, the differentiator on Pequods is uh, that they when they cook it that the uh, they put Parmesan all over the crust on the outside so it, like when it's lined up against the pan like the dough mm. is having the Parmesan like just like pressed in to the actual crust and it is just it seems like a small thing but like once you've had it it like fucks up all <laughs> other damn like food for you and. It's it's far and away the best. Uh, if you're if you're like ah, I'm gonna go out and get deepest pizza, just make, find the time to make your way to Pequods. Nice. If you're in the South Jersey area near Atlantic City, Ocean City, that area, 
go to Manko and Manko Pizza. If you're in Atlantic City, maybe Tony's Baltimore Grill, which is funny because this is Baltimore. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I'd say my favorite pizza in the world is is was once Mac and Manko's. Um, but <laughs> what happened? What do you what do you We're think? Where Mac at? Mac. Uh, Where the well, fuck is Mac? Mac, Mac, Mac. Manko is fine. Manko. It's Mac, Mac and Manko's originally. Um, now it's Manko and Manko. Uh, well, Manko and Manko, Manko and Manko. They didn't <laughs> just make it Manko's. There's two Manko's. Uh, Mac went away for a while. Somewhere, the IRS may have caught up. <laughs> oh, look, that happens. <laughs> Uh, I think there might still be a Max somewhere else, which I've not tried. But Manko, Manko and Manko is fantastic. It's just like the right blend of like oil and cheese and mm. grease and mm. perfect boardwalk pizza. Yeah. There's like three of them on the Ocean City boardwalk. There's one in Summers Point. Uh, go, go eat some. It's real good. Wow, we really found it again. I thought we lost it, but then we found. I know. I don't have time for this. Well, at some point, I will tell my. Being in a my favorite pizza joint when they act when the when the state came and shut it down while I was eating. Whoa! While you were eating the pizza, another time, another time. Oh, uh, that's why you have to tune back in next week so we can get the story about when the state shut down Big Pizza. Uh, the state nationalized pizza. I'm very curious to hear this story, Patrick. Patrick, where can people find you once you log off? They can find me. I'm finally going to see us tonight. We'll record a podcast about Hell that at yeah. some we point. We should. We uh, should. Maybe not. At Patrick Clubbing. So next week we have a different, we have a uh, Pride and Prejudice. Be good rewatch it. Yes. But the week after we'll that, get there. we will maybe get there. I still have to see it Patrick, too. you don't have to worry about that one. You won't be on it. <laughs> wow. The Us podcast? No. Yeah, that's, that's fine. Pride oh, the Pride and Prejudice no, one. Yeah, we're good. Yeah. No, we actually have changed my mind. Part, Pat, part 12. You got to uh, hurry up and watch all the Pride and Prejudice by tomorrow. You no, just be watch the last the episode. That's all you're going to talk about, right? <laughs> yeah, just watch the last episode. Uh-huh. You don't need the context. That's how that works. Kata, where can people find you after you log off? I don't know why I'm doing Not this. Not on Twitter. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like, that's, fucking, it. that's it. I'm totally oh, with God. you. No more Twitter. <laughs> None of us Do you want Kato to dox himself? No. Kato, where can people find you once you log off? Oh uh, shit! I don't know. Where do I log off? The fucking Prospect Park, I guess. Okay, nice. Well, that's a I mean, it's a big park, so you photo. can't fucking find me, huh? I mean, the mistake of looking at a photo of Rico's Pizza oh, and like I am filled with the most excruciating homesickness. Yeah, fuck. Like oh. I'm like looking at this, like because you remember, like oh man, I remember when it was like Friday night and like it was pizza night sometimes, that's and like background that greasy people. fucker would show up and you'd open it like a present. You you could already sort of see through the oh. translucent pa- grease paper. You'd open it up and there your pizza was, and oh, it's the most beautiful thin crust. If you're in West Palm Beach, go to Pizza Girls. It's very good. Pizza Girls, yeah, it's a great name. Two girls. Shout outs. They run it. girls. They, They're they great. Out here making good pizza. Yeah, hell yeah. Two broke girls. Who make pizza. God, a man. girl, a girl, and a pizza place. That We do this that all That show was all right. <laughs> that show was all right. We got to, I am, I have to piss. <laughs> I, I'm hungry. All right. Can we stop You find Patrick Kleppick logged off in the bathroom. You can find me on Twitter at Austin underscore Walker. I will never log off. Thank you as always you, to Bowen for this. You, you joke. You act like you're pl- you're playing that for laughs. Mr. No, it's true. <laughs> we need you to log off sometimes. Jack, delete Twitter so I can go to bed. Uh, it's not a fun thing. This isn't. A, it's a problem. Uh, Twitter.com/slash/waypoint. Waypoint.vice.com. Shoutouts to Bowen for letting us use the track. Miss you of the EP Pale Machine. 
Find out more about that at waypoint.zone slash B-O-E-N. Thank you to everyone who came out to our live show last week uh, at PAX. Thank you to everyone who ha- who said uh, very kind things to all of us. Uh, it really means the world to, to everybody. If you missed that, you can listen to it in this feed or you can go to our website, waypoint.vice.com. Uh, we've embedded a Twitch uh, video of it there. Um, other than that, I hope everyone has a great weekend and continues to uh, be good and be good at it. Pinocchio's in Harvard Square. Also very good. Just a short walk away. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. All right. <laughs> a short walk from wherever right. you are is a, a great short walk. Yeah, uh-huh. Just one see square. Space, Just one square. Cowboy. Just one square. Yeah, see you, see you space cowboy. That's my people. <laughs> right. Bye. Later, guys. Bye. Bye. Yeah, Godfather's Pizza. Yep. Okay. Here's a pizza man. So he understands money. Perfect. Uh-huh. You should go into games next. Yeah, listen. It's, it's other pizza men have done well in games. Yeah, absolutely. We don't. One of my favorite reoccurring uh, Deadspin beats is their obsession with the Papa John's guy. Yeah. Oh, uh, Schnatter. Yeah, they, they were on the beat before um, he took his uh, racist turn. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> It's been beautiful to watch ever since. I do love, I do love though, Schnatter's turn being like on a call, being like, so let's say there's a PR disaster. <laughs> let's say in public, I said, and then he says it. <laughs> it's amazing. People are people. Mm-hmm. I don't have answers. <laughs> Didn't eat a lot of Papa John's and was his? Mostly, uh, uh, did he still, uh, still have that father's rights website about taking back Papa John's? He did for a while. He did, where he tried to, to, to rally the, the base. <gasps> Bring Papa home. Wasn't that like one of the phrases? I feel like that's right. God, what was that website? Savepapajohns.com. <clears throat> oh, is it still up? Yeah. Yep. We are getting the truth out there. Recent developments. Oh my God! There's Recent? legal. Can you stop? Can you Recent? stop? Can we just start recording. I'm recording already. There's Don't worry. legal documents right. up here. Hold on. Stop, Rob. Are you ready to quick clap? I'm recording. I'm recording. Time dot is. Quick clap. <laughs> All right. 
46? Yep. 46. My favorite defense. <laughs> About John. John H. Schnatter is Papa John's founder and the former chairman and chief executive officer. From an early age, Schnatter watched with respect and admiration how his late father, Robert Schnatter, and his later and his late grandfather, Louis or Louis Ackerson, handled themselves in business in their respective legal careers. They were not only his mentors, they were his biggest fans uh, of his seemingly endless stamina and determination. She, oh, wow, there's a list of all of his honors on this website. Uh-huh. What's the latest update? Where right, are we well, at in the... well, I mean, you want me to click recent developments? So if you click okay, at the recent please. developments page here on the Save Papa John's website, it's a list of legal documents, <laughs> oh my Lord. press releases and statements, letters he's written. They're just he's just like a PDF dump. Yep. Also, it's from a year ago. <laughs> yeah. Recent developments, none really. <laughs> Yeah, copyright 2018. Wait, 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 wait maybe I'm on. wrong. Wait, 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 I think I'm wrong. I'm wrong because I thought that like most websites, you would put the most relevant stuff in the top left uh-huh. thing, the most recent development up there, but that seems to be the oldest one. Let's, let's wait, double. The, the, I still, I'm on page it's three. In, oh, March 5th, 2019, 2019, board agrees to John's demand that it remove shareholder restrictions. That's not usually what? how press releases are written. <laughs> board <laughs> agrees to John's. John's demand. Uh-huh. And, I, you know. John Schnatner uh, has uh, today announced. The brand. Wait, so is it? Are they, they're free? They're, they're, the he lawsuit's over. entered into an agreement with the company. That resolves his lawsuit currently pending in Delaware. Under the terms of the agreement, the company has agreed to promptly remove the acting in concert provision of the poison pill rights plan uh-huh. adopted by the Papa John's board of directors of 20, July 2018, which severely and improperly restricted the ability of shareholders to communicate with one another. Blah, 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 blah. This seems like spin. You know, I got to go to <laughs> dead spin to actually, figure, actually out figure out what's going out. on. You got to kill that spin. Uh, the key is that that Papa John is dismissing without prejudice the lawsuit that he filed now. Uh, and, you know, he he's still its largest shareholder. He's, he cares deeply, he says, about its employees, franchises, and investors. Wait, but let's... Huh. So, you know what the LA Times, though, how they summarize this? What's yeah, up? please. Papa John's founder agrees to quit board and drop lawsuit. <laughs> Isn't that also known as going away? Yeah. He lost is the thing that you're saying, basically. Uh, wow. Wow. Well, Papa that, we got that solved. Denied custody rights. Of and pizza. Visitation. Of his pizza <laughs> yeah. children. Fuck. They're finally for you, when I, Papa. When I was in, uh, in college, I can't remember what the pizza chain was. I can't remember off the top of my head what it was. It wasn't Pizza Hut. It wasn't Domino's. Maybe it was Domino's. But it, it must was one have been. Where you, you got... Um, you know, every time you ordered, you had like a punch card. And so my friend actually just like, I forget how he did it, but just created something that did the equivalent of that punch card. We collect those punch cards, go get our free pizza on a Friday. Book it. Yep. Are you talking about book it? What? Are you talking about book it? Are you talking about book it? Yep. That's, yeah. Patrick <laughs> and his friend were. Writing down the Scholastic Reader Classics. Sorry, that they, we were having like, microphone trouble. Fake. We were having some microphone trouble over here. I, I'm having a hard time hearing yeah, Kato. Uh-huh. Hello. Okay, Hello. now now I can hear Kato. Yeah. Uh huh. Now we're good. Are you sure? Uh huh. 
I, I, did, not, I did nothing. I was just way too far down, and you were mixed lower than everybody else, so yeah. I was not hearing you in my head. Did I turn them well. down? No, you're good. You're good. Are they good? They're good. Everyone's good. You uh, feel great. Do. It's It feels like Friday, but it's Thursday. It does feel like yeah. Friday. It feels it's, like no, Friday. No, it's Friday, right? Pat, Patrick. It's Friday. Oh, cool. All right. Can't wait for the weekend. We're in the future. I would love, I would love to sleep in tomorrow. 